Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with the great Adam Chemalewski. Chema, how are we today? I am feeling very, very great, sir. Thank you so much, and thank you very much for that great opening. Feeling very good, ready to take on today's episode. I'm really excited for today's episode. We are now officially in the thick of B-Movie May. Uh, We're actually going to talk about some B-Movies. In particular, we're going to talk about the 1954 The Fast and the Furious. Um, Not the the 2001 Fast and Furious, although, oddly enough, Vin Diesel also in this movie. Um, Little did people know, he's 107. He still looks good. He looks just as good in this movie as he does now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely right. He actually right. looks younger now. <laughs> he looks younger now, which is really strange. Uh, but he is wearing a black wife beater the entire time. Um, no, it's uh, 19, 1954, The Fast and the Furious. And the trivia there, we'll, we'll start the show off with a little bit of trivia. The trivia there is that the producers of 2001, The Fast and the Furious, bought the name rights but not the story rights. So they could name that film, The Fast and the Furious, as well. Gotcha, gotcha. Good piece of trivia, right? So there, there. you go. It probably, I'm going to go ahead and make a wild guess. It did not cost a lot of money. <laughs> no, I uh, probably see them buying this for really fucking cheap. Probably uh, along with a bunch of other titles and stuff like that, and a crazy package deal. So probably. God only knows what we're uh, what be movies and titles that you know from the past we're going to see in the future. Probably exactly. So there you go. So we're so we're talking about the Fast and the Furious from 1954. And following uh, Christopher Nolan's debut feature film from 1998. Uh, Those are our two B-movies. And Achema, before we dive into this, um, I will just say great and interesting selections on both both accounts here. Legitimately great. Why, thank you again, sir. And yeah, I can't wait to get into some of the the stuff while we talk about why came upon these movies. I do have an answer for that. And I had a lot of fun uh, watching these. The two hours and 20 minutes that it took for me to get through both of these movies and that's somehow still a half an hour less than the most recent Batman movie, yep. about an hour and change from Avengers Endgame. And in these uh, in this two hours and 20 minutes between two films, I had a really great time. I'm, I'm excited to talk about about both of them i and i gotta say just i really following surprised me in so many great mm-hmm. ways and i'm excited absolutely. to talk about it absolutely yeah we're definitely gonna we'll cut off our thoughts there until we get into the rest of this but uh as a lightning round normally we do a question of some variety but chum up for this i want you to deliver the tagline for these movies in your best sort of in your best sort of movie voice, especially if you know if you can really get into it, I want I want a little performance here. I'll do it as well, so you're not you're not going to be hanging uh, hanging on your own here. All right, <clears throat> when a wanted man meets a wanting woman, <laughs> that is for Fast the Fast and the Furious. Um, that was yes. so. There's like there's like a couple of them, so I'll, I'll give you one of the other ones. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> High speed excitement. When a wanted man meets a wanting woman. Oh. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to talk about some of the details about this tagline too. I know, right? To this episode, but I know. Yeah, I, I gotta say, um, I, I kind of feel that they maybe could have done a little bit better on the tagline and maybe just focused it on the car element of it because while there is a love story in this, and the love story is <laughs> definitely in your face. Um, like you could, you could feel it from, you know, maybe about 50, maybe right from the get go or 15 yeah. to 20 minutes into the movie, but it's definitely apparent. I just kind of feel that 
the tagline itself should have just been focused more on the car stuff. I, I think yeah. it, it, it definitely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let's, let's do, let's do the following. I'll, I'll let you just do this one because on your own, because I, it's not, Christopher Nolan gets better at his taglines um, as, as the yeah. years go on. So let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you are never alone. <laughs> Even though the tagline kind of betrays this movie a little bit, because um, the sort of insinuation is at least with the um, with the character that goes by Bill, but um, we can talk about that. Um, he kind of is always alone. Yeah, oh, he definitely <laughs> is, and um, this seems to be like one of those taglines that this had to be like the last possible thing that was done to the movie. Oh, for sure. Like, and like with Nolan being as involved in this project as he was, and we'll get into the details of the involvement and stuff. This had to be one of those things where he's just like, all right, it's done. And then somebody's like, you know, we need a tagline for this thing. And it had to be like the last possible thing that they did. Yeah. I, I have to imagine that the um, last possible thing that they did and maybe not even, not even totally like he's just like whatever <laughs> like I, yeah <laughs> it's you know a production is small although it was like a full it was like a full feature that like a, i mean it was mm-hmm. a full studio feature essentially or i guess not a studio but you know what i mean it was a full right. feature that was distributed so tagline is definitely one of those things that had to have i wouldn't be surprised if whoever distributed originally just said this is the tagline mm-hmm. yeah that's right and he's like yep yeah, that's good that's good fine. enough for me <laughs> yeah. that's fine so that <laughs> wouldn't surprise me either <laughs> yeah definitely yeah i i am not surprised by that at all dude i actually believe that somebody did this maybe not even like during the first screening or whatever they're just like okay we need something you know just yeah. we'll pick something out of thin air and it yeah. sounds like they did <laughs> yeah pretty it's a pretty generic um suspense sort of type of tagline like that mm-hmm. that could apply to a ton of movies oh yeah exactly all right, but let's get into it now. We are again. We're going to talk uh, fast. You know what? Let's talk the Fast and the Furious first. So yeah, we'll we'll right. go in time order. We'll go in chronological order. Um, so we're going to talk about the Fast and the Furious first. But before we do that, just some sort of general questions about the movies. And generally speaking, what were you expecting going into these movies? Okay, so with Fast and the Furious, I no joke, dude. I expected your typical stuff that is associated with these car centric movies, like. Chases, races, going to other places, all of these were stuff that I thought was just automatically built into the fact that this movie was called The Fast and the Furious. Mm-hmm. Um, the love story element based on the poster, like I said, I clearly expected something. Uh, the execution of it is uh, totally up for discussion, which we will get to. And, like, honestly, I just sort of expected some of the usual stuff that you kind of associate with movies of this time period, you know, like uh, police officers and everything like that, like yeah. uh, just in general, that the cops are like huge characters in movies back in the day. Um, I also, you know, like, even though I'm struggling to cite any specific examples from the movie, but like, just like the way that like old timey dialogue is delivered and everything, you know, I mean, like I can give you some references of like some of the, the stuff that I'm talking about, but it's more in line with the relationship of the characters. I kind of want to merge those two together as we gotcha. continue this discussion. Gotcha. And, and I'll just, I'll piggyback off that by just saying, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it was very much in line with every type of movie that, you know, pops up in this time period, from like the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that regard, nothing was really out of place. Nothing, you know, I wasn't expecting 
you know, I wasn't sitting there going like, well, of course, this is going to be this is going to be the, the drama of this, you know, clearly of the 1950s. Like I knew exactly what this was going to be. <laughs> right. um, so, yeah. And, and in, in that regard, it was definitely it was that, you know, that the the car, the probably an early car exploitation film. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly before, like the cars really, you know, and there's more elaborate action sequences and stuff. But you know, a, an early car exploitation movie where with you know the the rugged leading man and the hot babe falling in love, like right, exactly what it was, exactly all it was built to be. Yeah, exactly, dude. This was everything summed up in the, the title. I will say that, like you know, we. Um, being in our about to be approaching 40 and stuff, we have a lot of experience as far as with film and, you know, being alive on this planet. I will tell you that if I was a kid or younger in 1954, I'd probably say that there would be things in this movie that would have blown me the fuck away. (laughs) And that is just one of, you know, like I could see people in the fifties going to this movie and just, and being really like kind of wowed by some of the things that, um, that, that they do when it turns with the car stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, let's, let's jump into that. So our, our expectations for, uh, fast and furious, I'm just going to, by the way, I'm just going to call it fast and furious from now on. Yeah. Just yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, just, it's easier. Um, so, so for the, for the, so for fast and furious, were those expectations, you know, I shouldn't say obviously they were met, but like, how were they also exceeded or was was it lacking something you know like where were the where were the, you know where are the things that sort of um that go that get out of line of what you're expecting gotcha dude okay so i'll start off with um some of the stuff i started off first with the, the car stuff uh these expectations were definitely met and i will say that uh, there was a good amount of the car stuff i even liked that it was this cool kind of jaguar and i did some research and they found out you know they talked to people about specifically getting a jaguar in the movie and there was you know these deals being done and everything mm-hmm. so it was cool to and see these kinds of things existing back in the 50s because god only knows that in today there are whole sub industries based off of product placement and everything like that. So like, it's kind of cool to see some of the stuff in its early, um, you know, early incarnations and everything, even if it is something tacky as product placement, who the hell wants to talk right. about that? <laughs> right. But, but um, so that stuff with, um, with the car sing, okay. Um, totally met the, um, I figured there, you know, we did have chases from minute, like probably five in the movie, you know, they are in the car. There's a lot of driving, um, my expectations were definitely met in that regard where they were exceeded all kind of comes down to the big race at the end. Um, I was very impressed for the way that this race was shot for a 1950s B mm-hmm. movie. I thought that for the times and everything, they did a really good job. There was a lot of cool looking cars and stuff. They added a lot of weight to the race itself, which exceeded my expectations. So the idea of this cross-border race and mm-hmm. he's got to um you know use this race as an opportunity to get free and everything so i thought that that actually had exceeded my expectations i figuring that it was a b movie i was just like oh they'll race and then they'll go home and then that's it but no like the race was actually important to the story and there was you know some really kind of interesting build-up to it along along the way as well um one of the things that i was particularly surprised by and exceeded my expectations in a really great way this is some really nerdy shit here this is probably only going to be you'll probably only hear this talked about on this particular podcast but i really loved that the director john ireland and the production staff behind this movie 
was smart enough to um, break up footage of the race itself with the footage of Dorothy Malone's character, Connie, and, you know, kind of her getting free and then everything and then going to meet him on the track. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I was particularly impressed by this, and we, I'm going to give a throwback to our conversation about the, um, the War of Winterfell episode mm -hmm. of Game of Thrones, where the whole thing is at war, basically. But you're going to just get exhausted if you're watching like a whole bunch of people just kind of fight yes. over and over and over yes. again. So they did a really great job of taking us in and out of the main battle, either through stuff that is not related to the battle, just whether it be two characters talking or whether it's Arya being chased by an individual, uh, you know, the Army of the Dead member. So um, the fact that they were smart enough to realize that audiences are going to get bored if we're just watching a race about a, a race in a movie for 10 minutes in a row. And I just would have thought that back in the day that even believe me, like there's been a lot of really cool and interesting filming techniques and everything like that from the olden days that have still carried on today or maybe slightly modified. But the fact that they were smart enough to, realize that just it, it made me happy and i was kind of like surprised because I, I figured that like oh you know it's the 50s they're probably just like oh let's just show the race people will just be so excited to see cars race on camera mm -hmm. but they were well aware of themselves enough to not do that and to basically like have this model that is you know i'm sure that they picked it up from somebody in terms of like splicing footage together <laughs> not really a big step but the fact that it's um that kind of model is still followed to this day. It just, I thought it was very, very surprising that even back then they had awareness for this type of stuff. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Um, it, it, it is, it, and you know what? Not every single B movie did that. Um, right. In this year, I mean, absolutely. Like there would have just been, it would have just been the race or would have just, maybe would have, or maybe with some even lower budget movies, we don't even see the race. Right. Um, it, you know, it's all B-roll footage. Um, a lot of this is B-roll um, that was filmed uh, at what, like Pebble Beach or something at some old races uh, that they used to do mm -hmm. there. Um, so it's a lot of it's B-roll footage that, that Corman and company are, are, were already like paid to film. But, you know, in, in an even lower budget movie than this or just a more poorly done movie, they wouldn't have had that that pres that sense of mind, the presence to presence of mind to break it up that way so it's not just one thing happening for an extended period yeah dude i'm telling you like this movie for you know being a lower budget movie sure as hell felt like a regular hollywood movie from the time period and stuff like mm -hmm. that like and uh, i was and i gotta tell you i was i was pretty impressed by that like it's just it shows this level of awareness about stuff that um it just demonstrates like a higher intelligence for the art of film, even in the fifties, you know, there are yeah. some people that even today might be like, would it just be great to like see the race for 10 minutes straight? No, no one wants that. No one I, wants that at all. You know what? <laughs> if this movie was made today, that's exactly what would happen. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. 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 You bet. But it's weird that I say this because I know joke, I could watch the cast of winning time, play a minute for minute um, basketball game just in Lakers and Bulls uniforms <laughs> as an episode and be totally fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got you there. I got you there. Um, excellent points. Uh, I will, I will back you up on that on all the, all the, all the points you made. I will back you up on that. Um, the car stuff was actually surprisingly good. I mean, you know, that's the kind of the, po it's the point of the movie, a lot of these movies, but 
even even that being the point, the car stuff was still really good. The cars yeah. were cool as fuck. Um, I, right. I really, you know, not that we, not that you and I ever like had those cars, but like, you, I, there was a point in time, even in our lives, where you could see some cars from the car, those types of dragsters and speedsters from like the '60s and even the '50s on the road, and mm-hmm. you do not see that anymore. No, the, those cars are approaching seventy and eighty years old. Yeah, dude. Like when people, even out here in LA, like when people are taking classic cars out, it's, it's not those kinds of cars. So let me put it to you that way. You may see like, you know, the big fifties boat or even like the 1970s, huge motherfucking Cadillac, like Mm -hmm. out on the street and stuff. But like, you are not seeing that level of like vintage sports car out on the road. Like anybody with that, like Jag sitting in the garage is probably just like sitting around looking at it, drinking scotch and talking to it. I mean, not driving it on the road. A big, a big, a big part of it is, there is probably literally, you know, maybe in Southern California, there's one or two mechanics in the entirety mm-hmm. of the Southern California that could take to, that even know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and that's assuming you could even get parts for a car that old. So right. you're best, you're just best off not driving it anywhere. <laughs> right. That is just a statement piece that you're going to have in um, your garage and everything. Mm-hmm. And eventually it'll probably end up in a, uh, in a museum yeah. of some kind, you know, yeah. <laughs> but no, you make a really, really, really great point on that. And like, um, one other thing that I wanted to get into as far as the expectations go, was with this whole thing with the love story now. So, the expectations were met in the term in, in, in the way that they had a love story. Okay. Mm-hmm. There was some sort of a love story, but my fucking God, the presentation of this love story. Uh, yeah. Number one, this isn't flying at all today. Oh no, no, no chance. <laughs> Not a fucking chance. And number two, uh, one thing that I guess like was completely to be expected in a bad way and to kind of get into what I was talking about before was just some of this like old timey fucking dialogue where Frank's like, you know, I like my woman, like I like my coffee, quiet, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And these like things like this misogyny where they're, they're like walking after the car ran out of gas or broke down. And he's like, you know, some exercise is really good for your figure. And then like 20 seconds later, kissing this rail thin, attractive woman (laughs) needs to wash her figure. Apparently. Right. Exactly. Like all this, like really just dumb shit that's kind of like directed at women and, or is directed at women. And like, while in the back of my mind, I, I guess I figured like stuff like this could and would happen in this movie, but just because like I was right, doesn't mean I'm like happy about the fact that I'm right. And it's weird because, you know, not only is this dude like totally just like treating this woman horribly, but the fact that they're also playing into the whole, like, I don't know, Patty Hearst, Florence Nightingale syndrome or whatever that was the part that I was like, all right, like now you're just really like just forcing that like love story Mm -hmm. on us. And that's when it almost becomes like, it almost becomes like in a sense too formulaic for, for its own good, because here you do have this, you have this B movie and you know, I will say that like, it's definitely taken some chances and everything in terms of how they deliver the plot. I mean, you are like right on into it. There's not a lot of time to get to know the, the, the uh, secondary forces and stuff like that. This this movie, that that was something that I noted. This movie starts almost in the middle of the movie. Yeah, it does. It's really where it starts. That's right. 
Yeah, because like when you're in the diner scene in the beginning, like, you know, hey, it's just this diner. Everything's good. You know, you follow Connie on up to the, the diner after all the, the opening credits of the cars. And then like, oh, some guy, you know, he escaped from a jail in Coachella and like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Then all of a sudden that guy is at the diner out of nowhere. So um, like, you know, you, there were some like things like that where you just like you are thrown right on into it. And because I don't know, you, maybe there just wasn't enough time. Like they, they had to decide to go with like, all right, this guy kidnaps her. And in the end they fall in love. I just felt that that was, a yeah. that was just a little too forced and a little too old timey and typical movie formula where it's like, okay, you know, we, we need to have these people fall in love. You know, it's like, I don't really know if you need to for this movie, but yeah, whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Th- that's where, <clears throat> that's where like my expectations were not met. Um, but maybe, maybe not met, but like, I just kind of figured it was going this way. Um, especially considering that the movie does kind of go out of its way to not out of its way, but the the movie definitely gives you the signals that Connie's a little bit more progressive Mm -hmm. than a lot of women of her era. I mean, she's, you know, she's not, she's not betrothed to anyone. She's a race car driver. Um, you know, she's, she's the one who, who knows the car and works on it and everything. You know, that's not like out of left field, but certainly most women in the 1950s wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been, uh, you know, cut from this cloth that kind of cut from. But even then she's, you know, she really doesn't put up a big fuss when she gets to the big race and, oh, by the way, women can't drive. Right. You know, like, it's just sort of like, I feel like. I, I, so I feel like, you know, this is very much, obviously, this relationship wouldn't fly. Um, and even then, it's sort of, again, I don't want to say it betrays the way that they, they paint Connie, but it, as much as much leeway as they give Connie to be a little bit more of a character, she's still very much a secondary object to Frank. Yeah, exactly. It's like there's all these inconsistencies in terms of like what they're trying to do with this character, because you're 100 percent right. All the stuff about her being independent and her being a race car driver. This takes all the archetypes of women at this time and totally turns it on its fucking head. And then you are kind of like forced to see her work her way back into this role that society thinks that she should be in throughout you know kind of like throughout the movie so it's Mm -hmm. like she starts off like all independent and stuff like that and then just kind of casually works herself into you know just like something that i think women have moved beyond in the course of the last like 50 60 years so i like that's the one thing that i was just it was just kind of confusing to me but then also when you kind of look at the time period, you're like, all right, well, like it's the fucking 50s. It's, like, what were they going to do? Right. Ever be the hero? That wasn't going to happen. Right. It fits with the time period, unfortunately. But at the same time, we're really only we're only like five, six years away before these types of movies begin making the women the heroes of the movie. Like we're right. we're not that far away from it yet. So it is not like, again, it's not disappointing. This is this movie's almost 70 years old now. So, like, it's definitely an artifact, but it is sort of interesting how there were at least attempts in the story to kind of paint Connie as someone who's much more progressive. But then there's sort of, I, I don't know, maybe maybe the Hayes Code comes into it, where Connie was definitely ringed back in as a character throughout the rest of the mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, dude, that could easily that could easily be the case. I mean, there could be a, a multitude of different reasons. It's almost like, hey, let's hook the guys in with the, the woman being independent. It's all hot. And then stay for the fact that she just amounts to like what we think she is and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's a very interesting process. And like, if I 
was able to just randomly like you know email people that wrote and were involved with the script like which um a lot of them are not probably not anymore the That's, only i think the only one you're gonna be able to get a hold of right now at this point is roger corbin that is correct yeah a lot of these people are no longer with us and th- that would be just like a question that i would have because it is it is pretty inconsistent and like while i'm sure there are other examples of this just littered throughout the history of film. I am struggling to think of a movie that presents a, a badass woman and just kind of turns her into like, you know, just kind of like a fodder piece almost. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm sure, I'm sure it has still happened in movies recently. Like yeah, I, I, I guarantee it. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> but so, so yeah, I'm glad you touched on that, but I will say um, something, some where my expectations were exceeded, especially in a story, this, this short was that we did touch on some really interesting ideas. There, mm-hmm. like we touched on stuff like class division. Um, yeah. When we get to the character of Faber at the races, you know, mm-hmm. Faber is clearly he's dressed and talks like he's cut from a different cloth right. than than Frank is, and even sort of sort of talks down to him. Um, you know, at various points in time. And I think I think a part of it is also like he clearly knows that he. Does, I mean, that's the class division stuff. He knows that he doesn't belong with these people right. who own these super expensive cars. But you know, we do touch on class division that you know a a regular truck driver like Frank might end up with someone you know who even though we don't know this for sure, the fact that she owns this expensive sports car that Connie's clearly wealthy of some means. So right. you know, there's some class division talk. And then the, you know, we finally get the the third act reveal of, like, what's going on with Frank, the, the whole story with Frank. The idea that this justice system is rigged against the poor. Um, yeah. It's, you know, I'm just very, again, just very surprised that in a movie that is this brief, they touched on these types of subjects. Oh, yeah. And the fact that these types of subjects are still prominent in the world today and everything. I mean, it's just it shows, I guess, like it's a statement about our lack of evolution in our society. But it's also like something that, you know, kind of adds this other like level of intelligence onto the movie that in somehow in the story of a, you know, guy escaping from jail trying to get his freedom in Mexico that they are able to stop and address like these very serious issues in the way that they do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, very, it's, it's very intriguing. Um, again, it's just a, a, a modern movie would give this much more room to breathe. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of these ideas would have more time to form. Um, but, you know, again, we're talking a movie that was 71 minutes, 70 minutes. Right. Um, so yeah. you just don't have the time to really get, you know, in, in, in a movie that's going to, uh, it's favoring the action of what's going on over the over the some of the the life lessons, but um, mm-hmm. it's just interesting that they didn't even bother to touch on it at all. When it could have been, and and for sure, some movies of this time would have just made him guilty, right? And you know, yes. and whatever it, it, that that's what it would have been. Um, but they, you know, they give him they give they give the character and the um, the character a little bit more backstory, and it makes him much more sympathetic. I'm just. I will say this though: I am glad that in the last seventy years, all that has changed. Mm-hmm. That the justice yes. system is not rigged against the poor, and that there is no more class division. I'm glad that that's over now. Yeah, believe me. Like I live in California and stuff now, as well. Everybody knows, and like no joke, there is literally no class division out here. Everything none. looks like Beverly Hills. Nothing. None. No, it's perfect. <laughs> glad. Glad that we solved that problem. Um, so, uh, before we move on here, any any other sort of. Um, Things that uh, that met or you know either did not or, or exceeded your expectations. 
honestly, like I did have one and you, you addressed it in the beginning of the episode when I seriously expected some type of connection to the modern movies, like just a, maybe a character being named Dominic Toretto, something mm-hmm. like that. I expected that, but that that obviously was not the case. Yeah, yeah, I was I was very I was very curious about that because as we're as you, that was kind of half expecting that that maybe I don't know maybe one of the drivers was named Toretto or something or the you know the. Hey, it was it was someone from the Toretto Trucking Company ran me off the you know tried to run me off the road yes, or whatever something like that yeah and, and we, when we never got that and I'm like so why are these two movies why do they have the same name that's so I like I had to go look that up at that point so yeah and like it makes me wonder like if the, like do you have to buy the name like is that something that you have to actually buy because there are, there are movies that have the same title is that something that you would actually have to purchase I, I it must it has to be. Dude, it has to be because you know how these, you know how these studios are. They want to make yeah. every last. Yeah. Even if it cost them, even if it's like, oh, we made five thousand uh, dollars because a, a movie, a new movie, bought a, a title from a movie from the nineteen fifties. It's five thousand dollars. Yeah, there's, yeah, and honestly, like since this movie was so old, there's probably like old timey litigation and stuff like language written into orders and documents that for all we know, just about guaranteed that like anything prior to like 1960, you have to buy the name or something dumb like that. There's probably, probably. some insurance policy in there. So they get paid in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So, I mean, at the very, at the very minimum, how long are the Mickey mouse rights now for stuff like a hundred years? Yeah. Well, if a Josh Holly has anything about it, it'll be 52. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah. So like, so like the Mickey mouse rights at the, at the very least, I, I wouldn't, so I don't know. I guess like in I don't know thirty years from now, we should be looking on the lookout for movies that all of a sudden are like we should be on the lookout for Beyond the Valley of the Ultra Dolls or something. <laughs> oh, dude, if that's the case, I'm going to go on a fucking shopping spree in thirty years. That pennies on the dollar for these movie title names. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. So besides the length, what do you think separates um, you know this choice of the, fa- of the Fast and the Furious from some of the other contemporary uh, contemporary films of the time? Okay, well, one you touched on, um, and this is the the idea of just more room to breathe. Um, This definitely, there's not a lot of breathing room in this uh, version of The Fast and the Furious. And more contemporary movies definitely have a lot more breathing room. Even movies that do kind of suck you in, like, right away, that start off with some kind of opening chase scene and stuff. Like, maybe, like, even in, like, um, I'm thinking about Good Time with Robert Pattinson. You're, like, right into the robbery right away. There's still a lot of breathing room in that script, too. Like, and it also, um, with this breathing room, you just kind of get the ability to, like, flesh out the non-main characters. And, like, it's not like with The Fast and the Furious 1954, you know, we didn't need to, like, get to know the cops, like, in every way, shape, or form. But in the more modern settings... The cops are a little flushed out. Like they may even give the cop like something like maybe he's got problems with his wife and this is the case he's got to solve so he can just go spend time with his kids or something. There'd be some kind of additional layering to some of the secondary characters. Mm -hmm. That is that is definitely one um, difference that I uh, had noticed. Um, obviously, the production value on the, the contemporary movies is just like through the fucking roof. Um, I don't even really see a 
B racing movie even being made today, unless it just happens to be about a low budget movie about a race car driver. Um, I was going to say, I don't think that this movie gets made on a low budget unless it's, unless it's a TV show. Right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. That's a very good point. TV could find a a room for like a story like this, but you're, you're just not doing this in the, in the, the the movies and stuff like that on a low budget. It's just not happening. Like you're going to want to recreate through CGI various, um, you know, like the Daytona racetrack or whatever racetrack you're possibly doing. And in a low budget, I just, I just don't think it's going to work. The spectacle that is associated with these type of movies, just the, the, the money to create it on, film just is not like yeah you know it just far exceeds the b-movie budget and um okay the one last thing that i do uh, have to add is that um, in the contemporary movies there is just way more action outside of the car stuff yeah. so while we we did have the the kind of like the scene in the diner and everything where there's that little kerfuffle, kerfuffle with nielsen and stuff mm-hmm. In the modern movie, there will be probably like five to ten more of those scenes, and they, some of them may involve the um, you know the the two people on the run like getting into fights, avoiding stuff. It also may involve like the cops shaking people down for information. But there's going to be a lot more action in between the action that the audience came there to see. Yep. Yeah. There. There definitely. There definitely would be more. Um more of that sort of padding to the movie for sure. Um, you, you, you've covered all the things I want about, I wanted to talk about, so I'm not going to add too much to everything else. But since you you are hitting on something else that <clears throat> you are hitting on another point that I want to talk about uh, <clears throat> here at the end, and that's so like they would have padded it out with more like like you said like that opening scene would have been like a brawl, right? Like there would have been tables flying and multiple people involved in a modern movie. Um, yep. you know, in, in this, it's, it's like a, it's a one punch guy goes to the floor and th- that's the end of the fight. And th- I think, I think the, the Frank character in a modern movie would have been much more, <clears throat> would have been much more defensively violent than mm-hmm. he is in this movie. There's, yeah, he doesn't, he, you know, other than obviously pointing the gun at, you know, a few times at Connie and, and getting, Getting unnecessarily rough with her again. It was the fifties. Getting unnecessarily rough with her, he really doesn't do anything violent, and I, mm-hmm. I and I think that's also sort of to play into the idea that he is in fact innocent, and obviously he right. saves Faber's life at the end. But but like there, the if you were to make if you were to make this movie now, Frank would have beaten the crap out of the guy at the beginning to you know to get out of the situation, and then there mm-hmm. would have been another situation mm-hmm. where. You know, a cop, or or probably actually probably more likely, Faber would have been much would have been a much bigger um, component, and he would yeah. have had to fight Faber at some point in time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I could see him getting into scuffles with the police that are more on the defensive, and like if he does get the victory over a cop, he just like handcuffs him to a car as he's driving right. away. You know, there's no real killing and stuff. They would definitely insert him in situations to give the character more to do in terms of the action. Yeah, exactly. And in this it's it's more it's more avoidance and talking. Um like mm-hmm. that's that's really sort of his his uh, main defense mode is just talking his way out of things. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is for fucking sure. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the the who what why breakdown Chema. I'll let you sort of we're gonna we're gonna cover um mm-hmm. the, the who are the key people in the production of the movie. 
what makes this film important or noteworthy in the grand scheme of B-movies, and why did you choose this particular movie? So we can just go through this, and we'll, we'll hash it all out. Okay. All right. So let me start with the production stuff. I had to go scroll down a little bit on my outline, and here I am. All right. Fast and Furious 1954 with a budget of $50,000 and made a box office of 250K, 73-minute running time. Not, not, Ford, a bad, not a bad turnover for a movie they made in nine days. Yeah, that is not a bad fucking turnover at all, dude. At all. So the uh, that's five times its fucking amount. Like that that is an insane investment. <laughs> so okay, so Roger Corman, um, he did the story. He was the producer of the movie. He financed the movie. He ended up getting sixty thousand dollars from a guy named Robert Lippert, who was based in San Francisco. And Robert Lippert is worthy of the discussion because he is the owner and one of the owners of Lippert Pictures and Theaters, which was a production company and then a theater chain, all in like the San Francisco area. Mm-hmm. This is another almost kind of like Roger Corman type guy where he had produced over 300 movies, including the um, original version of The Fly from 1958. Oh, no and he even got himself a um, self-proclaimed title as being the king of the bees. So he ended up um, the two of them, I think, like were together on some movie called Monster and this money that was a kind of the result of Monster ended up being the money that um, funded the Fast and the Furious. So it was uh, yeah, shot in nine days, um, and though it struggled to make money in the beginning because it was usually on the bottom of a double bill, the firm was the film was successful enough to land Corman a three D a three movie deal that set up like the next you know couple years of his life mm-hmm. in business. Uh, this was Roger Corman's second produced feature, the first one uh, under Amer- under the American Releasing Corporation, which later became American International Pictures. That was a company um, involved with the first Mad Max movie in 1980. So this company was um, still around even uh, at least into the time that we were born. Um, The screenplay was written by Gene Howell, along with uh, Corman, who was a television actress in the 1950s and shows like Lux Video Theater and Telephone Time. Never fucking um, heard of those shows. (laughs) And then another guy. um, This is actually pretty interesting. Another guy um, who is credited on the screenplay um, is named Jerome Udlum, who was a dude who actually served time in jail for forgeries in for forgery in the 1930s. And then after his jail time was over, he went to go on and write for a newspaper in Minneapolis and then um, ended up writing films. And he worked um, with Roger Corman on Highway Dragnet, which was one of the second of three releases by Mm -hmm. Corman in 1954. So this kind of like just an interesting thing about this screenwriter guy being in jail for forgery. And, uh, yes. So John Ireland, um, and Edward Sampson are credited as the two directors, uh, John Ireland, um, I guess only agreed to be in the movie if he can direct it or he would only direct the movie if he could be in it. One of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, this guy, Ireland is a pretty much just like a B movie kind of star and like television and stuff. Like he hasn't really done a lot of things that you and I would have heard of, but one movie he was a part of was Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus in 1960, where he played a gladiator named, uh, named Circus. 
And he died in 1992 in Santa Barbara. Then uh, Dorothy Malone, being the female lead, was mostly a B-movie star. And until she actually won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Written in the Wind in 1956. And her last appearance was Basic Instinct in 1992 as somebody named Hazel Dopkins. And she died in uh, 2018 in Dallas, Texas, where she had um, moved her family from California. And at the time that she passed, she was actually one of the last living members of the Golden Age of Hollywood to have to have made it that long yeah i i I know i i saw that she i saw that she won an academy award when i was doing some research and i was just i was just kind of surprised it just um you know like when you just kind of glance at like the rest of her body of work you know there's nothing mostly a b-movie actress mostly smaller parts and stuff like that which is nothing wrong with that um she made a whole long career out of it um just very interesting that um that that uh, someone from these early B-movies, very, very soon after being in one of these, uh, wins an Academy Award. Yes, exactly. Yeah, just after three years, no less. Like, that is a really impressive because there's usually this, you know, it's all things Hollywood. Like, there's this kind of, like, thing that hangs over you and stuff in terms of, like, some of the work that you have uh, done prior to, you know, any kind of awards nomination or any type of advancements in your career in Hollywood. And for the fact that she was able to have the B movie cloud and kind of jacket wearing on her, like, um, and to go from that to an Academy Academy award in such a short period of time, I think is actually a pretty cool fucking thing. Absolutely. I'm looking, I'm looking her up now to see what she played in basic instinct. Um, she's in a, she's sitting there in a scene with, um, with, uh, Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas. So, yeah, she. I can't oh, sorry. This, of, I'm sorry. Now I'm looking at fiddle. Or am I looking at fiddle attraction? No, I'm looking at basic instinct. Sorry. Yeah, I, for the life of me, it has been so long since I've seen basic instinct, and she is just one of these characters. I cannot place it in my I, mind. There's, a, I, there's I only either. like one thing that comes in my mind. Uh, basic exactly. Instinct. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So that was some of the the production stuff. And in terms of why this movie is um, noteworthy in the grand scheme of B movies, is that this is an early example of um, car exploitation. I'm not going to say that this kicked off any type of genre. I mean, I think if any thing history probably attributes that to like easy rider and, and stuff like that in terms of like a grounded or the, the beginning of the car exploitation genre. But, um, this was also a, um, the Roger Corman's second movie. So yeah. in terms of the, the theme that I was going with for my selections being this origin of legends, like it's kind of cool to see where some of these, um, directors and producers come from where they get their start. And, one thing that is also kind of interesting is to see that how some of this stuff kind of tails and sticks with the um, directors and producers for a majority of their career. And like, as Roger Corman did go on to produce over 300 plus movies and stuff, like he's got a lot of like B movie kind of titles, even, Mm -hmm. even his more recent stuff involving production was, you know, like giant shark versus croctopus or whatever it's called. So like, he in 1954 he was doing this kind of stuff and in 2018 he was doing this kind of stuff so it's really like a guy who um no matter how much money and how much success that he may have accumulated over time still stuck to his roots even as a dude into his 80s it's yeah it's really interesting that you know like i i think i think you know most most people would would you know especially in the in in hollywood tasting success at any level would want to sort of like what's the next step 
You know, what's, mm-hmm. how do I get to, you know, how do I become more than a B movie producer and director and writer? How do I become more than a B? And he's just like, no, like I'm going to, I'm going to, instead of, you know, instead of working my way into more of the mainstream stuff, how can I make my stuff, how can I make my stuff on its, you know, on its own merits become more mainstream or become more, more prominent in pop culture, which is mm-hmm. what he did. Yeah, dude, it, it, that's exactly right. Like, it's somebody like really understanding and like a, not just appreciating the craft of like the movie itself, but the low budget movie, which is almost like a separate art form in and out of itself. And like the fact that he stuck around in, in doing this and like really like became this master of the art form and was able to turn successful business ventures and everything and sustain a career like this in Hollywood, which is a very difficult industry, especially when you're making stuff that maybe doesn't make a whole lot of money. It's, it's, it's really, really like impressive. And when we, as a, like, I guess as a zeitgeist, as a Twitter having society and for all the online discussions about various figures in movies that, take place throughout the year regularly, almost like the equivalent of the is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate that'll start here in eight months, guaranteed. Um, <laughs> not eight, sorry, not eight months, more like five months now. Um, the, 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 for as many people as there are in film figures to focus on, I feel that this is somebody that is as legendary as he is, definitely goes under the radar in terms of like the online discussion and stuff like a dude, if you were to go into Twitter right now and type in um, Quinn Tarantino or type in like maybe like a Joel Schumacher, pick any type of more contemporary director, you'll probably find somebody thrashing Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin right now or saying Joel Schumacher ruined Batman right now. Um, And this conversation happens over and over and over again, but nobody really talks about like Roger Corman and his work over and over and over again. You know, like I feel that it's somebody that has a lot of room for discussion with over 300 films under his belt, but doesn't really like get the, it doesn't really get that like legendary status um, through the collective we as a society as I think he should be getting. Oh, he absolutely, he absolutely, he absolutely should. If, this isn't even like deep research here. This is just like at the top of his Wikipedia page. Here are the here are the young directors that he worked with, mentored, mostly worked with all these people. Um, you probably have heard of some of these people: Francis Ford Coppola. Ron yep. Howard, Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, Peter Bogdanovich, Joe Dante, John Sayles, James Cameron. Um, here are some of the actors that he gave like their, fir- their first roles to. Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Bruce Stern, Sylvester Stallone, Diane Ladd, William Shatner. I mean, that's yeah. fucking <laughs> insane. <laughs> that mm-hmm. just those names, and there's more. I mean, there's so many more. Just yeah. those names are the ones that are like right at the top of the list for like the people that he either worked directly with and actually like, I'm fairly certain um, I'm fairly certain he produced Ron Howard's first movie. Um, So like, you know, this was like, these are like, he worked with these people like when they were babies basically. And they are some of the most definitive voices in the history of Hollywood. 
I know. It's like you really cannot piece together a resume that impressive. Like, and just the fact that, like, not only did he, like, work with these people, but he gave these motherfucking people, like, their starts. There's not a lot of people that can go around and say they gave one person their their first start, let alone an impressive crop of, of actors and directors that you just gave. And, uh... Yes. Yeah, so let me see here. Rodden Howard's first movie was a movie called Grand Theft Auto in 1977. And it, it's um, John Davidson produced oh, okay. this one. That was his first one. But I was just like, wow, Grand Theft Auto. Like how how would um, Roger Corman not produce that, especially after I just uh, I just know that I know that Ron Howard has mentioned Corman. Maybe maybe that was maybe it wasn't directing. Maybe it was just like his first job was on a Corman film, which is what I'm guessing. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me either. And Ron Howard's been in this industry longer Long than um, the industry has probably been around. I so. mean, like, and his, his dad was old Hollywood, like old, old yeah. Hollywood. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, like the Howards have got, I mean, they might as well have planted the um, the Hollywood flag out mm-hmm. here. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, and then in terms of why I um, chose this particular movie, uh I will tell you, it first starts off with the um, the theme that I was going with is like this origin of, of Legends theme for my selections. Um, the other uh, choice that um, I was going to put down, because I, I have something down here, but I'm saving it for the following. And it's just it's a really good one. And I'm just trying not to go down this tangent. But um, so like uh, so also like um I, I know Joke just kind of wanted to see what a 1954 Fast and the Furious movie looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out, like, it's sort of, I guess, similar to the, the modern one, and at least in terms of cars. And they, stuff. they were all drinking Coronas throughout the movie, which is interesting. <laughs> there was no mention of family. Which oh, kind that's, of, true. Um, that's true. That's true. That's of, one change they made. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so like a lot of the stuff that I have is um, just basically like I, I kind of wanted to see an early Roger Corman movie. And since um, I had moved to Los Angeles, uh, I had gotten to do some work on some Roger Cormany type stuff, the details of which I have to kind of keep separate from the, our discussion here today. But um, I've just kind of gotten a um, just a sort of respect for this particular um character in film history i've had a respect for him before and since moving out here in this kind of work situation i've just gotten a little bit more respect for the guy gotcha gotcha it's it was a good choice it was a really excellent choice um it's hard it's really hard to go when you're when you're kind of looking for this kind of stuff it's really hard to go wrong with any roger corman movie yeah i gotta tell you like if you were to scroll through like his first like probably 10 or 15 titles there's all of those movies are like something that would fit into the category of what we're like talking about here. But I also noticed that, um, I didn't really want to go through like 15 different movies to see if they were all on YouTube. So I just kind of picked like a couple of different titles and I went with the yeah. earlier ones and whichever <laughs> ones were available for free. I was like, yeah, this is the, this is the, the, the one that I, I, I did the exact same thing. I was, I was, I had some ideas in mind and I was just like, no, like it, you know, my choice popped up. I, 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 as I mentioned to you in, a, in an instant message, my choice popped up on Daily Motion. So I'm like, perfect. That's like I was, I was looking for something this time period. We don't have to pay for it. Fantastic. Right. Exactly. So the economics of things um, was something that pushed everything into the, the forefront. 
But um, when it was all said and done, it ended up being a um, an enjoyable B movie watching experience for sure, for sure. Um, let's just real quickly go through here um, some standouts. We're gonna, standout performance. Let's start there with uh, with Fast and Furious. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and guess that you, there's really only one of two options here. Yeah, I went with Connie on this yeah. one. Um, there was just absolutely no way I was going to talk about the the Frank character in terms of a standout performance. I think that this is per- a performance that um, people could watch and learn a lot from, especially in the what not to do category and sure. as far as writers go today. But uh, in general, Connie, played by Dorothy Malone, was an absolutely fantastic character for this. I, I did love in the beginning how she really was this flipped on its head archetype of the um, of the average woman back in the day i didn't like how she progressively worked herself into more of a stereotype as the movie went on but in terms of like an overall standout i mean this woman's just just all in all badass yep. like the, the, the blonde hair and the, the black and white and everything just looked awesome the clothes the car everything was great yep absolutely um either i mean i guess you could i really again you only have two choices here basically unless you think the um the waitress was like the standout performance because she was she was in a different movie altogether but um right <laughs> but uh no connie was fantastic um and you know I, I i guess you could say we're looking at like one of the earliest examples of like the corman type of lead female character where mm-hmm. she is a badass where she's independent she has her own agenda um, we just, you know, it's just not fully realized at this point in time yet. Yeah, exactly. That's right. This is like an early rendition of a of an archetype that Corman later on goes to develop yep. and stuff. Definitely. How about uh, this is going to be this is going to be an interesting one. Your standout effect uh, from this movie. <laughs> Okay, so the standout effect was um, happens a little bit later in the movie during the race itself. And I was quite surprised the way that they decided to do footage of Faber gaining ground on um, on Frank. And I thought at least like what would have made sense to me was just like point the camera and have the two of them drive sort of close together. But instead it looked like they did one of these like kind of um, split footage kind of shots where they shot a, um, a, a shot of Frank in the car and then it looks like they, at a different like location, shot footage of Faber driving his car, and then spliced them together in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and that's it, it's, it's rear projection. Rear projection. Okay. Yeah. So he's gotcha. So it's it, what it is is um, Frank John Ireland is sitting in the in a car in a studio and you know just sitting there like on an elevated platform, and then there's mm-hmm. essentially like a a, a curtain a screen behind him with, with yeah. the footage of favor gaining on him. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So th- that was the thing that stood out to me the most. Cause it has been a very long time since I've seen anything that kind of looks like that. I mean, yeah. we're definitely not seeing it in, in a, in a modern setting, but um, I hadn't seen the, this rear projection thing in a while. So that that's kind of the thing that stuck out to me the most. Can I, can I give you, I know that it's different, but, can I let you in on a secret? What's that? The Mandalorian, the backgrounds yeah. are almost all rear proje- or all rear projection. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we were talking about this yesterday in my writing group. It's all shot at this place called the volume and stuff. It's like yeah. one big circular, like green screen and stuff. Yep. And I, I've seen um, footage of how they or like shots or photos of how they like shoot this, like a behind the scenes thing. And like, 
I got to tell you, like, pretty fucking impressive it's, as far as like the how far we've come. It really is the. Um, it's it's not it's it wasn't Kathleen Kennedy, but it was like another higher up in you know one of the higher up people with the Star Wars universe. Um, they were they were walking on set with Favreau while this you know while this vault was active essentially, and they were just they literally went oh we didn't think you were building any sets for this, like <laughs> as they're standing in an empty room. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like that style of doing stuff this is it's this is revolutionary dude i mean like you may not have to like shoot on location like ever the fuck again in terms no. of you know bringing the full d you might send some people over to get some b-roll footage or footage that will later be you know put into the green screen but um as far as like taking like big you know productions overseas like this is something that could definitely um, make that a lot easier in terms of the production budget, especially for especially for TV shows that have to yeah. film. Conti- like I can't imagine, you know, obviously the cost of a movie shooting a movie on location, you know, like triples the budget. But like, right. I couldn't imagine the difficulty of trying to do that with a TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's even if it's in the United States, you know, moving the whole produ- TV production someplace for an extended oh, yeah. period of time, like. I'm assuming that, you know, obviously there's there's a little bit, there's, you know, obviously Georgia has Yollywood, but like, imagine that you're, like, you're shooting a movie in Montana for like three months, how hard that would be. Oh my God, dude. Like, just even the idea of pitching the cast that you're going to be stuck in Montana for three months, just, that's not going to sound good for yeah. anybody. But, and like, to especially with Mandalorian, with the way that they bring in all these like cameos and stuff, like the budget to fly somebody out for a different episode, every single freaking episode to yep. keep them there, to house them, to then get their place cleaned up to bring in the next person or just rent out a whole new place. That's a lot of goddamn yep. money here. And when Jason Sudeikis could just get in his car and drive to Burbank, like, uh, you know, exactly. Hey, that's a lot easier than putting him on a plane. He doesn't want to go to LAX. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, but, uh, but good call on that. It was, it was interesting that, um, it was interesting that it was cause they're, I'm very surprised considering they, obviously they had like the B roll race footage, and they, but they obviously then shot some actual. Um, uh, Roger Corman was one of the drivers, actually, in the in some of the racings that they shot. I'm mm-hmm. I am very surprised that they didn't just shoot, like they did with some a lot of the race stuff. Just shoot it, you know, just have them cruising at like twenty miles an hour and then speed it up. Like, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that they opted with the rear projection of that one shot. Like, I know exactly what you're talking about. It did kind of surprise me. Yeah. Oh yeah, dude, for sure. What about um, you? What was your um, standout one? I, I it's mostly because I love this. I still love this, and I really legitimately think there's still a place to some degree for this in modern movies. But I love the model work um, oh, of yeah. the car crashing at the beginning, the truck crashing at the beginning, and then Faber's mm-hmm. car crashing at the end. Um, yeah, it you know, like you can see it in like how it stands out now. But like you know, at the time, obviously, it would have it definitely would have passed the eye test. But you can also see like how much detail went into like in the beginning, like the bales of hay, those like yeah. tiny little miniature bales of hay, the tiny little like the trees, every all the model work that went into creating the landscape and stuff. Like I do think that there is room for that sort of practical effect now, still in certain in certain movies, certain TV shows. But I just mm-hmm. miss I just miss the craft work, basically, of that sort of special effect. Dude, I totally understand what you mean here. Um, the the model work on that for the 1950s and stuff, those like, you know, he said the, the thing in the beginning and then the shot of the car crash at the end and stuff. 
those got the job done. Those mm-hmm. seriously got the goddamn job done for, um, you know, considering everything else was not so much uh, in model work. And like, I, I was like, you know, it was noticeable that something like did look a little different, but like, it wasn't like horrible to the point where I was just like, all right, my God, the stupid model car here, this totally affects my opinion of the movie and stuff. But, um, like, I gotta say, I would actually not mind, a little bit more of a return to like miniatures and stuff. There's a couple Instagram accounts that I follow. There's this guy who like builds miniature sets out of like little freaking pieces of styrofoam and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And he does a great job. And I'm just like, I, I just like love all that kind of stuff and everything. It's kind of like this thing you don't really, you don't get a lot of in movies anymore. I mean, people still do it like the, the, um, the Batmobile from the Nolan dark Knights. A lot of that stuff was miniatures and everything's like a remote control car. But, um, I just think that was always kind of like one of the cooler elements of like older filmmaking was the, the use of miniatures and models and taking them and making them look big and fucking badass and stuff. And I always get a kick out of like the, um, behind the scenes footage. And I remember when like the old star, when the star Wars got released on the VHS tapes, like for the second time. And it came with this bonus footage, they were showing, you know, like what it looked like when they were shooting the big scene, when they're racing through the trench at the death star. And it's just like, it's just these guys hanging out in a parking lot, you know, riding a bike with a camera. That's just going over this trench over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And like, it just makes me happy. I don't know why there's something about the miniature stuff that I've always loved. Yeah. It's just a fun, it's just such a, I guess it's one of those things when you see it on screen, you're just like, Holy shit. Like this was, this is like literally something in, in, in a very, you know, at, at its most basic level, it's something you and I could do with some yeah. time on our hands. Well, um, yeah, obviously, dude. there's much more that goes into it after that. But like like the um, the cities blowing up at Independence Day, miniatures, mm-hmm. models. Yeah, I believe and, it. Totally. And then there's, you know, and then there's, they add CGI and stuff to it. But like the, the, the flames in the buildings and stuff, those are all models. Yeah, I dude, I totally fucking believe that and stuff. And it's just... It's just so cool. It just is like something more than just, hey, we're just going to CGI something, you know, yep. like, I, dude, I'm not going to lie. Like if I ever had a bunch of money and if I had the space and if I ever was able to talk Jess into it, I would be one of those dudes that had like a train room or something with like a little miniature town and everything like yeah. Dayton and stuff. Mm-hmm. I would I would love to have one of those and just get drunk and play the trains <laughs> and listen to music all day. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. Excellent. How about uh, how about some direction slash camera work here? Okay, for me, the most impressive stuff was the way that they put together the race in the end. And this yeah. goes everything with including the um, the intercut scenes of Connie that I had talked about earlier and that level of intelligence and all that. But just the way that we got this B-roll footage of the races mixed in with like some of the other footage, the rear projection stuff, to put a, a race sequence together in 1954 that was this entertaining just completely stands out to me i thought it was a a great job for what they had yeah i i just i just sort of generally put it as like all the stuff in cars i mean even if even if it's just connie and frank driving along the road like it, it it they do such a good job of making it of making their car trip feel real they do such a good job of especially again on a super limited budget with super limited time making that race at the end feel like it's an actual race making Mm -hmm. it you know making it feel i don't it just it it's one of those movies and i guess this is the hallmark of all good b movies it's it 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 maximizes what it can do you know what it's trying to do it maximizes 
and it maximizes exactly the the amount of car stuff that they're able to show really works off pretty well. Oh God. Yeah, man. Like there was a lot of car stuff and I, for, for living out here, it was really interesting to see like what Malibu looked like back in the day and yeah. everything. Like it just looks so different now and everything. And um, the fact that, you know, we got to see a lot of like that footage of them kind of driving around that area. I was, I was just incredibly impressed. I was like, wow, like this looks, this was Malibu and there's this particular, like area of the movie. And I, I think it's by like where the diner is. I think I like know where that area is and mm-hmm. it looks nothing like how it did in the movie. It's before 15 million people moved in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> More like 9 million people with 15, 9,000 people with $15 million each. That's true. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's like, true. Dude, that's the one dude. I will tell you that is one weird thing. There's probably, 15,000 people up there at the most. And the, the area of Malibu is like huge compared to other areas of the city. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just so much property up there. Literally, like there's only like 15,000 people. A majority of the people, when you look up like where we live, you could walk to the beach, look north, and you see the um, this kind of curve of the landscape that at the end of the curve is Malibu. Before that is like Pacific Palisades. Like that's everybody was just like, all right, if we can't afford Malibu, we're just going to move in Pacific Palisades. And when you see it at night, Pacific Palisades is lit up and like Malibu, you like, okay, there's obviously the biggest house on the hill you can see. But um, yeah, it's crazy how for as famous as it is. Number one, not many people live up there. And number two, there's not all that much to do except for beach and nature stuff. I, I'm going to go ahead and make a guess that the people of Malibu and whatever you know, whatever the administrative um, body is, whether it's a mayor, council, whatever, mm-hmm. are making sure it stays that way. They definitely are. Yeah. And I was—I recently was in Malibu uh, with Jess, and we had overheard a conversation. I think we were walking the beach, and this guy was complaining. He was a resident of Malibu, and he was complaining about how. All of the people that have the nicest beachfront property are in like this clique together and they do shit that like other people who aren't in this clique don't like. And I was like, all right, so it's like that now. And um, I, I don't know why I didn't expect anything less, but to mm-hmm. actually hear a super rich guy complaining that the people who are richer than him are treating him unfairly was just something <laughs> I got a kick out of that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right, let's let's move on to the Siskel and Ebert portion. And um, I don't know if you knew, maybe you did, um, but maybe people out there don't know. Roger Ebert got his start in Hollywood writing movies for Russ Meyer. No shit, I did not know that. Yep, he was he was a B movie writer before, he, um, and he moves on to like other other you know other work in film. On, and then obviously before he becomes the Roger Ebert that we know of. Um, mm-hmm. But his that was his work. He was writing all these uh, all these B movies for Russ Meyer. That's really interesting. I figured he would have gotten to start somewhere. I did not know it was yep. that place. So there you go. He was uh, he was a, a B movie person as well. So Siskel and Ebert, are, what are we? What are what are your feelings here on Fast and Fur- the Fast and the Furious? Okay, I want to take my thumbs and kind of like point them at one another in like a neutral, even kind of thing because. Um, like I, I'm not gonna like I, I did like enjoy the movie mm-hmm. and stuff. There's just a lot of things from back then that are definitely not flying today, especially with like the relationship and stuff. So while I did think the movie was entertaining, I don't think that it holds up as well because of this like love story thing. So I'm going like a 
thumbs pointing at each other, kind of like even kind of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm with you. I understand. I will give this a single thumb up. Um, and okay. Then, like you said, one kind of to the side here. Um, oh. It's a thumb up for the um, sort of looking at like an interesting artifact for the time. Mm-hmm. Like this is a really yeah. interesting little time capsule. I, I actually, I, I think I've told you this before. I'm, I'm pretty sure I have. I do try to watch like an old, not just, not like a movie from the 80s. I try to watch a movie from like the 40s or the 50s, like once a year. Um, like I've, I recently, um, last year, like watched The Grapes of Wrath again, actually from like the 30s. Um, just sort of as like this, you know, I'm just, I want to see what they were like when they were really first starting. And definitely. Their f- <laughs> movies from the 30s and 40s are vastly different from movies now. Mm-hmm. Um, just go watch Wizard of Oz. That is a vastly <laughs> different movie than what would be made today. Um, so like I, I, so in that, in that case, that's sort of like a, this is a really interesting artifact of B movie history that you should, you should check it out. However, you could probably find better artifacts from the B movie era that would more, that would better satisfy what you're looking for. So that's why I give like the, you're right, the the thumb to the side and one up. Yeah, I do. I understand what you're saying. I completely agree with that. Like this is a cool artifact for sure. I definitely, definitely believe that there are better representations of like the B movie out there, even from this time period, give or take a couple of years and stuff. Mm-hmm. And dude, I do the same thing that you do every now and then I bust out like an older movie and stuff, you know, <laughs> mainly because I got a, a list of stuff that I have to see. And um, every time I do it, like I'm always like in one of these positions where I'm like, man, like I, I'm really impressed with like what they are able to do with this, you know, like with, with what they had mm-hmm. with like the story. I'm always like very, very impressed by it. I, I rarely like watch an older movie and I'm like, my God, this is a total piece of shit. But like at the same time, it's like, it just like me being a generation um, that is, you know, like a lot, just a lot younger came around a lot later after these movies mm-hmm. came out. There's just such like a disconnect for me. You know, there are just sometimes where like I, I even may understand the dialogue, but I'm just like, why in the hell is this dude fucking doing this? <laughs> you right. know, and like even like the even when we see in old movies when like a guy like puts his jacket over like a puddle and stuff and I'm like. Did people really do that? Like, could they not just probably walk not. around it? Like, they're just <laughs> things like that, you know. Like, I'm just, right. like, I, I'm just like, it's so unusual to me that I'm just like, people really do this shit. There's a disconnect. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's there, we are. I mean, we're when you think about movies like the 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 beginning of Hollywood, we're two generations removed from mm-hmm. from that era. It, it's it is filmmaking is so so different. And I'm gonna go ahead and make make a wild assumption because the way we're seeing the way we're seeing our entertainment change so rapidly with social media that in 30 years, Chum, movies are gonna look real different to us than oh, I, they do to to young people. Uh, you know, 30 years from now. I I completely agree with you, dude. I'm sort of interested, but sort of terrified to see what yeah. that's gonna look like. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep watching <laughs> 80s movies over and over again. That's it. Yeah. Just gonna pretend like yeah. nothing's progressed since then. <laughs> I just ordered the running man on DVD and the thing. So like I'm for some reason I have just, I've been in this, I will gladly be watching 80 stuff. It's an, it's 90 fucking minutes and um, I'm very happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Any, any final thoughts here on the fast and the furious? Oh, other than the fact we got through this pretty fast and furiously. I'm really right. excited and I'm looking forward to um, continuing on with the, the with following and stuff. And uh, yeah, man, this like everybody I think should should at least go out there and watch it and 
you know, you could just have a have a fun time seeing like a nice little artifact from this time period of Hollywood. Yep. Um, with you on that. Uh, so go ahead and take everyone out there. This is going to be your intermission in between our, our double feature. So uh, go ahead and get your snacks, your drinks, whatever else you're going to do. And then come back and we will cover Christopher Nolan's debut feature following. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Welcome back to the second part of our double feature where we are covering Following from 1998, directed by Christopher Nolan, his first feature film. Um, so this is this one was before we get into the questions and stuff. This is one that like as I was watching it, this is maybe of of the films that we've selected. This is the only one I'll, I will peg as a B movie that is at least at some level trying to be an A movie. Yeah. Right. Oh yes, definitely. Like this movie is all of um, some money away from being a, a hit at the box. I mean, maybe not in the nineties or something because Christopher Nolan wasn't the name where that guy's name could basically just get you a hundred million dollars in the door. But um, this movie was, is not too far away from being a really good and all hailed by the critics movie that plays at a theater near you. Right. This could have been, um, if this had a budget of like a couple million dollars, and was fleshed out a little bit more. This could have been, oh fuck! This could have been like his saw or something, something, yeah. something smaller that just kind of blew up in its own way. Yeah, de- definitely, dude. Like I, if I was to launch a sort of comparison, I guess to maybe some other films in his filmography, this would have been maybe like another version of an, or another Insomnia. You know? Yeah, like, that's uh, a good. That's a good call. Yeah like a movie like because insomnia is really grounded i mean it doesn't focus on that many people and stuff mm-hmm. and like it, insomnia is really good but like it's kind of lost in this catalog that nolan has especially with what he's done in the last like 10 years or so yeah so this is this to me is like a um like a, a an unfinished version of insomnia gotcha that's a really good way to put it that's a really good way to put it so with um with following what were you what were you expecting going into that Okay, so um, first thing, I honestly thought Cillian Murphy was going to be in the movie. <laughs> that was, I thought he would make an appearance in some way, shape, or form, just knowing how much Christopher Nolan loves Cillian Murphy. Um, I did expect some type of big twist that yeah. I didn't see coming, and like that's one thing that I uh, had expected. Um, then there are two other things that I had expected that are sort of in like the same, they're sort of in the same line as one another. Um, I expected to see some early evidence of Nolan's like signature film making style and um, the way that he actually presents the product, especially with his use of these, what appear to be random shots and how they all kind of come together. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the, the filmmaking itself, I expected to see evidence of that. And then I expected, like, which is in the same kind of family, I did expect to see some type of evidence of his nonlinear storytelling that he is, mm-hmm. that basically is, like, one of his signature styles. So, um, Cillian Murphy, big plot twist, and then two examples of Christopher Nolan's, like, signature stuff that we, that we know today. 
Yeah, I, I was um, <clears throat> when I just when you when you put when you said this is what we're gonna do. Um, I it was like okay, so Christopher Nolan's first film. The first thing I thought of was the the storytelling sequence. How it's you know he turns mm-hmm. it on its head. Um, it's 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 nonlinear, but it's it's interesting. I, I think he's the only director, director writer. He writes all of his movies too. That he approaches nonlinear storytelling in multiple different ways. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, like, I, it's it's pretty astounding that like you can sort of you can make a time travel movie. You could make a, a you could you can make a time or I should say a time inversion movie. You could make um, a you can make a movie about dream. You can do all this stuff and layer it so it, like the 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 way it's presented to you isn't straightforward. Um, I, I, I so he must have been thinking about obviously he was thinking about that from the first time he ever wrote anything. Um, so was definitely expecting that, and I was as soon as I saw like just the general synopsis, I'm like, well, of course it's going to involve some thieves. Someone's got to be stealing something because right. half <laughs> of his movies are about someone stealing something or there's mm-hmm. some criminal element to it. So that, right. those were like. I was like, "Yep, that's that's for sure." And you know what? How many how many first films or indie films or student films or whatever involve criminals or thieves? Probably close to ninety percent of them. Yeah, it's a pretty easy, uh, pretty easy well to uh, draw from for yeah. sure. <laughs> so, so I, you know, all of those things just felt like I'm like, okay, that that's exactly where we're going with this. I, I, at the very least, I know this is very much in. Now we see that Nolan's wheelhouse has kind of always been Nolan's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. This is exactly right. Like this whole thing right here is a great example of where this guy came from. And I'll stop there because we'll be getting into a yeah. lot more of that as we go along. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how about um, how about those expectations? Like what what in this movie either exceeded them or maybe just fell a little bit short of what you're expecting? Okay, so there was no Cillian Murphy, which um, that, so that immediately <laughs> fell flat. Um, but that does, but believe me, that that is like nothing. Like that really did not affect my opinion of this movie in any way, shape, or form because I was pretty much exceeded on every other expectation. Um, with the twist, I even read the synopsis of the movie and stuff on Wikipedia and everything, and like I was like, okay, so I read this and I'm kind of like waiting for stuff to happen, but because he told the story the way that it did when we got this big twist of how this whole thing was just a setup with um with Cobb and bill and everything it it definitely like took me by surprise like when he just cuts from being on the phone to to getting in the bed with the blonde and everything i was like wow okay holy shit like i just i really did not see that coming even after reading the synopsis so i was totally exceeded on um on the part of the twist when it came to the evidence of his non-linear storytelling we get that within the first five minutes and mm-hmm. like the way that this story comes together, which we'll get into a more detail as it goes on. I was very, very, very impressed by, I mean, like there were just some things where I'm like, okay, what the hell is this supposed to mean? 45 minutes later. Oh shit. That's where they were going with this whole thing. So the, um, the evidence of the, the, the storytelling and stuff was there and well, and coupled with um, the actual, like, um, uh, the, the the storytelling itself, as well as the the, the filmmaking and everything like yeah. that, and how this movie, for being shot on six thousand dollars over twenty years ago, um, really really feels like a, a like a Christopher Nolan movie, even with that criteria. I I think, and I think that's because when it's when you're shooting when you're shooting at that budget. And, you know, if you, you know, I don't know how much of the, like the, the background you looked into it, like 
you know, he's he's doing all of the shooting. He's controlling right. all the shots. He wrote it. He's mm-hmm. he had to do a lot of the edit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's it, it may be even more so than you know, Tenet and, and some of his other more recent projects. Maybe more so that is like undistilled Christopher Nolan versus what we get with you know the Batman movies and what we get with um, again with Tenet and um, and Dunkirk. Like it's yeah. even more raw Christopher Nolan. Yeah, this is him at his Christopher Nolan E or whatever. Yeah. Like, I was so impressed that these traits of his were so prominent and still and, and very and for being so early into this were very, very, very refined. And yeah. like it's all it's almost like I don't know. I'm trying to put this in the best way and I'm going to be very bad on examples, but there are times when you are looking at a filmmaker's career and you start with his earliest one and go on to his later work where you sort of see these things that, um, that maybe that they're known for in like their earliest form. And you could tell that they're in their earliest form. Like he just hasn't gotten there yet. He hasn't perfected that shot yet with this. It was almost like, this was going to be his style of filmmaking from day fucking one. And he just completely built on everything that was pretty much perfected, even at a $6,000 budget and everything. So that was just incredibly astounding to me that this style of his was as clear and as defined as it is at such an early point in his career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, it's one of the things that I had down was, the the nonlinear storytelling. Um, I I have a feeling that even though you and I have seen obviously you know not just Christopher Nolan but all the other movies that are are shot like this that are shot out of sequence and the story gets mm-hmm. kind of pieced together in, in a you know in a in a spiral or however you want to like visualize it that having seen a ton of these movies that you and I knowing how to do this still wouldn't be able to crack it on our first try. That yeah. it, would, it would there would still be loose ends or nonsensical parts, and it's incredible that this is first Nolan's first crack at it, and the nonlinear storytelling it, again, like at very at very first, because I I want to say there's, I want to say like in the first five minutes there's like three time jumps essentially. Yeah. Oh, dude, you're you start off the opening shot is jumping ahead into the future. Yeah. So so within a couple minutes, you have multiple time ju- – calling them time jumps isn't the right way. Like we're not talking about time travel, but looks at different periods of the story. Um, mm-hmm. um, so like we're looking at different – you know, we're looking at the essentially the end, middle, beginning, however you want to – I can't remember the exact order of how it's presented to us. But considering that like that happens within the first couple of minutes, uh, I guarantee you most most amateur filmmakers with trying to do something like this – wouldn't have been able to make it sensical by minute 45. Like it, it would just be falling apart or there'd be, or there, there would have to be a big exposition dump or something in the middle to sort of mm-hmm. tie pieces together. But Nolan sticks with it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the, everything reveals itself as it should. And it's amazing that he, he hit that essentially on the head on his first try. Yeah, it, it, it really is, dude. And like, I was watching this movie and um, I immediately was going back to when I was in college and we watched The Limey during one of my film classes. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I liked it. You know, Terrence Stamp is the fucking man. Oh, he's great. An early, earlier Soderbergh movie and stuff. And like, Soderbergh does like a similar thing where it's like juggling all these shots around. And like, 
in the limey, like, yes, like there is some sort of like, you know, catharsis about like these shot rotations and the way that he does it. But like for Soderbergh's point in his career, when he had, when he did the limey and he was making films for a while prior to the release of the limey, it's almost like he still hadn't even perfected it after a couple mm-hmm. of tries. Well, as Nolan was like right out of the gate, like has it on lockdown. And that, that to me was just like incredibly impressive. Like even, even Tarantino, like in some of the clever time juggling that he's done, like, you know, it took him to get to Pulp Fiction to put that nonlinear storytelling together and everything. And, and he had done things prior like reservoir dogs and he had some experience in Hollywood prior to Pulp Fiction. But like, this is Nolan. This just feels like Nolan waking up and it's like, all right, I want to make a short film. And then just like, naturally, this is how he does it. I know that it's not that, but it it feels like it to me. This is, this is this sort of, um, this sort of inherent talent for this. I mean, Obviously, he's he's told he's told linear stories otherwise, but mm-hmm. um, I think that would be his sort of like his signature thing. I mean, fuck, uh, Memento, <laughs> like it's, yeah, right. <laughs> like um, you know, this is his signature thing, and the fact that like the fact that he not only does it right out the gate, but also like as you get into his later filmography, seeing the various ways he can do it, it's it's really fascinating to see that like it's really fascinating to see like the 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 first version of this. And how tight it is. I mean, it really is tight. And again, a movie that's about 72 minutes long? Uh, Yes. Yeah, you bet. Definitely. 71 something. It's amazing to, to spin this, to spin this little, to spin this story so tightly out of sequence and it still makes sense in 72 minutes. Fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's nuts, dude. This is like just a, a genius that like only this guy and few others might possess in the world. Yeah. can I, I also want to give a, a lot of credit to the cast as well. Um, mm-hmm. Lucy Russell, the blonde, is the only like real professional at this point in time. The only like real professional actress, um, actor on set. Um, Alex Haw is an amateur actor, uh, mm-hmm. Cobb. And, uh, and Bill Theo Young, Youngbald, Diobald. Yes, Can't, I don't have that in front of me right now. But um, was in a few things, smaller productions and stuff like that. But at that at this point in time, by no means like a a seasoned pro. And they take the you know, and obviously there's more people in it. But that, those are your those are your three main characters, and they do a really good job of taking a an otherwise a pretty again like a really straightforward indie movie story that doesn't have like a lot of. I mean, when you really break it down to its simplest parts, it's not super complicated and it's kind of a little, it's a little basic, but between, Mm -hmm. between the storytelling format that Nolan, that Nolan loves and their performances, it definitely gets elevated a few notches above what it should be. Oh, you got that right, dude. The basic part, I could not agree with you more on. (laughs) Like, this is really a very, very simple story. And like, in a way it's, it's, kind of like an unusual one too like it's something that even as i go to explain it it still doesn't like roll off the tongue right like oh you know it's this guy he follows people i get that that is something really cool and then he like all of a sudden gets involved in the world of home burglary and it's like right. oh okay but like when you watch it it's like my god i don't what the hell else was this guy supposed to do like i mean home burglary was like the perfect choice and it's just shows you that with this cast and with, with Nolan and everything he brings to the table that such a basic and sort of, 
I don't even kind of flat, maybe concepts could be yeah. turned into something so amazing. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, it's, it's a story about uh, a damsel in distress, um, supposedly being, you know, supposedly with her, her violent boyfriend crime boss and the, the plucky guy has to do something about it. And mm-hmm. like that literally describes so many indie movies from, I, I don't know, from, from time, from time immemorial on to now. Um, mm-hmm. The concept is extremely simple, but the direct, the direction, and the act, and the acting really elevate it and make it, and make it something more than again, make it something more than what it should be. Especially considering you're right, it's really strange when you when you throw in the Cobb character and like what he brings to it, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. It's just a really strange sort of um, fit that that yeah. that works. I know it's it is unfucking believable, man. Like I'm telling you, when you're just watching some of this stuff unfold on screen and like, you know, part of me, like in the beginning, it's like, okay, you know, it's Christopher Nolan. Like really, you know, you, you could see it. You could fucking feel that it's Christopher Nolan. And like the subject matter is just like, it's a little different than like what he usually does um, in, in, in terms of like the, the actual story being told. And then like, you just get sucked the fuck into it in a way that like only he and a few others can do. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's why he that's why he kind of goes to Warner Brothers and is like, "Here's what I'm doing," and they're like, yeah. "Okay, yeah, that's right." It's like I don't want any notes either. Just give me a hundred fifty million dollar yep. check. Oh, do you want two fifty? Yeah, why not? Yep. I'm gonna make a movie about two timelines traveling at each other, and I'm gonna show them traveling at each other with a bunch of uh, like it's it's. And then Warner Brothers is like, "Okay, I'm, all right, I guess." It's like, what do you think about Kenneth Branagh on Warner Brothers? It's like, does it matter what we think? He's yeah. like, no. <laughs> so, uh, so any anything that um, I, I have a couple things here, but anything that sort of fell short of your expectations? Fell short wise, I like I, I guess maybe just like in terms of the the some of the flatness of like what the story is about is something that I guess didn't really meet my expectations. And I know we're looking at like a shorter budget and stuff here, but it was just something that I think was really different and especially so different from everything else that he's done. Like the, the actual like content of the story, I guess maybe fell a little bit like shyer of my expectations. Um, If there was one like just kind of stupid thing that bugged me was like, the sound wasn't really all that great in this movie. Um, even compared to like some other like lower budget stuff. Um, and when I was watching it on YouTube and everything, like I totally forgave the, um, you know, the fact that I wasn't looking at like the sharpest possible image and stuff. Like I didn't really put a lot of, I didn't put a lot of stock into, you know, being a stickler about that. But one of the things I did notice was that the sound itself was not as good as, um, I had seen examples of indie budget, like sound and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens when you do it all in a single handheld camcorder. (laughs) Right. There's, there's no ADR. There's nothing else you can do. So that was, that that was what it was, and you're you're right. Like you notice it a couple times, especially in um, the the restaurant scene. Um, mm-hmm. There's it, it's uh, what's her well the blonde. I don't think they give her a name, do they? No, they don't. No, um, the blonde played by Lucy Russell um, gets a little bit quiet at some points, and it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's nothing big, but that is just like one thing that I was like, oh wow, this is kind of sticks out. This actually does. Is, is actually noticeable at times. Right, right, exactly. So I'm with you on that one. Um, I thought story-wise, 
I feel like I could have used, and I know this is, the the twist is central to this, but I, I wish they would have held the twist off for a little bit longer. Because um, I could have used more of Cobb and Bill breaking into breaking into homes. Yeah, they only do it twice, I think, before the big twist happens. So, yeah. like a couple, a couple more adventures, and like I'm glad that something went wrong on the first one. You know, like the people yeah. showed up. There could have been maybe a little bit more of a repercussion from that other than just them seeing her in the restaurant and having a conversation. Maybe that confrontation could have happened. But, um, yeah, a little bit, maybe like just something a little bit more to kind of show that what they're doing here is dangerous. Like you could actually be arrested by it. You can't just talk your way out of it type yes. thing. Like I would have taken anything, a simple yeah. cop chase, something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, this is one of those things, um, literally just like one more scene. I think could have cemented some things with me a little bit more. And it, a lot of it just comes from the fact that like, I really enjoy Cobb. So, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, more, more of Cobb being that kind of weirdo would have been pretty fun too. Oh, definitely. I got some, I got some things to say about him as we get in, but um, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm on the Cobb train. Yeah. But, but generally speaking, really, really was kind of blown away by, by, uh, by everything with this. So, I mean, it's, it's a uh, boy. I, I'll tell you what, they don't make this is one of those this is one of those movies they do not make movies like this anymore oh no <laughs> not a fucking chance like a movie like this is only going to really exist in like in this kind of like low budget yep. world and stuff and like even if this was an idea or a sample script that made their way into a big studio and stuff and they became intrigued enough to, to kick it around and start the development process oh this would have been way different yep. way way different and I am just imagining all these, like, you know, having a big storyline around the bald guy. Um, mm -hmm. I, for some reason, I don't even know if this movie starts and ends the way that it does oh, no. like with a, with a, the big budget and stuff. So like, I, I could see the a studio seeing this premise and really taking it to the extreme. Some of it might be good. And then some of it might be like really, really dumb. Like they have to rob a, they have to rob a big, place and the whole thing is centered around a, a big robbery that takes place in like piccadilly circus or something it, I don't know. right it, this would be a big heist movie versus like a, a psychological exploration type movie yes yeah you bet the, the heist would be the, the the focus of the movie for sure so again besides the length what separates following from some contemporary movies okay so like um one thing is that, uh, again, going back to this buffer that we had discussed with Fast and Furious, is that this is, like, in the fucking heart of it. I mean, there's literally no unused space in this movie whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I, we get a good idea of who the characters are, but I, I'm not going to lie. Like, could have used, like, maybe just like you said, like, the one scene, just, like, a little bit more with them because I, like, I enjoyed this so much. So I think other movies today have a... Um, definitely have like more of a buffer when it comes to the way that time and everything and this nonlinear storing stuff, like movies today either go with something 
pretty easy or something that is just disgustingly complicated that it is so hard to follow. This one, I think, did a really, really good job of kind of finding the medium of, you know, being basic to being really complicated. Yeah. Um, I almost think that if this movie had a little bit more money, the, the plot line would have maybe been way more complex in terms of Could have been, yeah. the, the, the time juggling and, and stuff like that. But um, so I, I noticed that this is this was like a really, really great way of presenting this kind of story for, for the budget. Um, and like I said, like a lot of contemporary stuff is way more um, just through the roof as far as craziness. And then the other thing goes is that um, like just body count, I guess like, you know, there's only like one real kind of like, sorry, there's um three, it would be the, the blonde, the witness who dies and the guy that, um, that bill hits with the hammer when he's stealing the money. If this was a more contemporary feature of this kind, I think we'd have a much more higher body count. There'd be a lot more action that kind of glues these Mm -hmm. um, scenes together and stuff. So um, there would have just basically been like, just more spectacle if this was a um, a contemporary film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting since this movie was much more recent. We could, we have like a better comparison for Mm -hmm. four movies. I mean, it's 24 years ago. So, I mean, it's not that long ago. And it came out at the same time as a lot. There, at this point in time, we're into a lot of neo noir movies. Um, yeah. And this one is this one real. Even though it, it does fit in, it still stands out again because of the you know the, the way Nolan tells stories. But a lot of those neo noirs would have gone heavier, like you said, on spectacle and like the and as we mentioned before, the heist. Like that would have been like those would have been like two of the key components. Was like let's make this an interesting heist movie. Make sure, make sure a bunch of people get shot and killed or beat up and killed, whatever it is. Um, and whereas this one, again, because of the minuscule budget, this one scales it all way, way down. I mean, mm-hmm. we're stealing people's CDs right. in the beginning. <laughs> right. and, and, and really, and, and as, as Cobb mentions, it's not, about, it's not about the crime. It's not about killing people. Or, excuse me, it's not about robbing people or anything. It's The whole point is to, like, you're you're creating this really interesting intrusion into their life, mm-hmm. and so like this one versus a lot of other neo noir movies that most of them focusing on crimes and criminals and and under you know underground the underground of some city or whatever and corrupt cops and everything else. This one's like the the psychological exploration of what it, why these people are robbing people why right. you know what they're looking for. You know the sort of the chaos that they enjoy out of it. at least at least in the Cobb character he enjoys like the the sort of disruption it causes and that is significantly unique compared to other neo noir movies of its time. Oh, dude, yes, I'm glad you brought up that that kind of part with Cobb and this idea of like it's causing this disruption in people's lives because in other movies you don't get you don't get monologues like that. Like mm-hmm. I have never fucking seen a, a monologue in a movie about a heist or where something is stolen where the guy literally addresses the psychology of um, when people go to rebuy the stuff, they actually have to think about what the fuck they were doing with this thing in the first place and stuff. Mm-hmm. This, that was one of the, the best monologues like not only of the movie, but that was like a pretty damn good monologue even for to, to put um, in Nolan up against Nolan's future catalog. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And just, and then the, the idea of this, I love this idea. And this is something again, that follows that clearly follows Nolan forever. Like these trinkets and totems and these mm-hmm. little things, you know, like we have like the whole box in this case um, right. that like these small things, 
um, have, you know, it's, you know, in, um, in this movie, what is, uh, what is he, a seahorse, a little like seahorse sculpture is like one of the things. And, um, uh, what do you have? Like a candy necklace and some, some other stuff that, that belonged to the blonde. And, um, like those are like the important pieces of her life that have more, you know, these, these little objects are very symbolic. And then, Hey, we get to inception. It's the top. Or yep. it's the um, you know it's the spinning top. It's the what are they? Um, what is what does Killian Murphy give his dad? It's like a drawing. Oh my god! I think so. Holy I, shit! And I, I watched Inception like six months ago too. I puts like a drawing remember. in his safe, and also like the idea of like these little safety boxes. Um, right. The, an idea that follows him again, follows him t- through multiple movies. But like that these that these like little small objects, while you know the way the Cobb is thinking about them, while they just seem like. You know, whatever, it's a little fucking plastic seahorse. That meant something to, you know, that means something to the blonde. What does it mean to her? Um, mm-hmm. And why does she keep it? Why does she keep it here? Like, it's right. it, it, there There are more meanings behind it. So, like, he, it's interesting that um, we're going with that angle of this burglar who is, you know, like, he, he enjoys the psychological game of it all. Right. Oh, yeah. He gets more of a kick out of stealing an REM green CD than he does, uh, you know, like actually the, the, the money that would come as a result mm-hmm. of this robbery. Yep. Very it sounds bad. a lot like the Joker, actually. It does. It does. There's I, I, this. You know what? I think you're right with a lot of directors. Um, you know, we see the early stuff, uh, you know, he or she like you can you can find their um, some of their fingerprints and their early mm-hmm. stuff. This is a whole fucking handprint of yeah. of Nolan's that is on every. I mean, it is. This is unmistakable. Like whatever. I don't know what he's working on next, but I, I'm I'm going to go ahead now. Having seen this movie, I'm going to be looking for some of these little uh, for some of these little Nolanisms now. Oh, definitely, dude. This is if anything has made some of the Nolanisms from his more recent work, uh, even Batman begins, which is like 20 some years ago. Like it's uh, just about 20 years ago. Um, it makes some of these things even more apparent. And it's like, okay, now I kind of sort of get where this comes from, you know, mm-hmm. like, Oh, it, it wasn't just something. It wasn't just his way of telling a Batman story to be cool and different. Like this is actually where he comes from. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I, I didn't see it in the credits. And I, 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 I can pull the page up here in a second. His brother didn't have anything to do with this, did he? No, his okay. uncle does, who is the the cop. The, the cop, the yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I just, you know, just wondering because they, you know, after this, they begin collaborating on some stuff. Right. Um, and then obviously, yeah. and then obviously Jonah Nolan becomes his own, you know, his own writer director too. But um, it, it just, I, I, one of those things, I didn't, I didn't catch it in the credits. I wasn't totally sure. Yeah, no, I, I had looked into that because like once I, once I noticed this kind of trend with, people involved in this kind of popping up in other Nolan stuff. I, I was wondering about the exact same thing too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is that, that's how I, I feel like that's going to be one of the sound clips there. This is a Nolan handprint on a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's unmistakably Christopher Nolan. So let's move into the breakdown. Um, I, I guess we got the who already covered, um, but we can get into, <laughs> we'll get a little bit deeper into it. So who are the key people in the production of this movie? <clears throat> 
Besides, oh. besides Christopher Nolan. Okay, so um, Christopher Nolan is actually like um, he's pretty much the main guy in this. Like, so you're saying he wrote, directed, he, he actually paid for um, a lot of this movie's kind of budget on his six thousand dollar budget on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, a lot of the budget went to the sixteen millimeter film stock that the whole thing was right. shot on. So I mean, this guy, like, as far as like the actual like behind the scenes production stuff, I mean, this is pretty much Nolan through and through. Uh, when it comes to the producers of the movie he worked with emma thomas who um would later be a producer on pretty much anything that Nolan has done oh that is his wife okay gotcha that's why she's on everything yeah got yeah i totally did not include that in my little like sentence here um jeremy theobald jeremy theobald Theobald. is the young the young guy bill he is also a, a producer on the movie um as far as like any nolan centric stuff he is a water guy uh who works for the water department in um batman begins mm-hmm. um the let me see here is other production stuff the uh Wikipedia has Next Wave Films listed as the production company. It doesn't give you a link to take you to another Wikipedia page, so I'm assuming that this might have been just a production company that he had at the time before he evolved into, into something else. You know, like it's probably just the, the one-off thing before he started um, syncope going or whatever. Syncope, yeah, yeah, that's right, syncope. Yes. Um, so that was one of the production companies. The distribution company was um, Momentum Pictures, which uh, distributed ho- a bunch of stuff, dude. Like Hobo with a Shotgun, 2009, The King's Speech. Right. Um, yeah. It started off in London in 1996, and it has since moved its headquarters to Toronto, which came in 2015, 2016. And then after that, which is my favorite part, it was absorbed by Entertainment One, which is a division of Hasbro Toys. I keep forgetting that Hasbro owns this Entertainment One, and Entertainment One has been like absorbing a bunch of stuff. They actually own Death Row Records now, believe Mm. it or not. It's under the Hasbro umbrella. So, um... So aside from Jeremy Theobald, uh, we have Lucy Russell as the blonde. Um, the She has done a lot of stuff, too, yeah. um, of, not- of notoriety. She is in Batman Begins, and she has also acted in The Crown. Those were like the two kind of things that I had actually heard of. Other than that, there's a lot of uh, British television and movies in her filmography. Yeah, she's, she's one of those people that pops up. She would be She would be the equivalent of that actress that pops up in all the law and orders and all the, you know, in like a, like a featured guest role in all the procedurals. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, definitely. Gotcha. And um, the last thing, which is my favorite part. So Nolan's uncle, John Nolan, he's the the cop in the movie that um, Bill is talking to in his like what is the the, fu- the absolute farthest into the future storyline. Yep. And um, this guy who's Nolan's uncle also went on to be in Dunkirk. He was a board member of Wayne Enterprises and uh, the Dark Knight Rises and Dark Knight, I think, one of those two, if not both. Mm-hmm. And my favorite piece of trivia is that he had a occurring, reoccurring role on Person of Interest. So he has been in the Cavortex. He's been and, in the Cavortex. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I, <laughs> if anyone, I'm probably a lot of people don't know what we're talking about. Listen to the QAnon Anonymous pop, podcast and their episode on Jim Caviezel who was the main star of the CBS show Person of Interest, uh, which was uh, written, created, produced, directed by Jonah Nolan, Christopher Nolan's brother. Um, boy, what a fucking maniac that, that yeah. Jim Caviezel is. <laughs> an absolute maniac. 
big time fucking maniac there, dude. Oh my God. Yeah. Without having to dive into that whole, um, cause God only knows there's so much there. Yeah. Just know that Christopher Nolan's uncle has been around one of the weirdest fucking assholes to ever <laughs> set foot in front of a camera. And that is saying a lot. I was going to say that is saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's really saying a lot in a world where Kevin Spacey exists. That is saying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, so that is the the people that are involved in the main production on um, the six thousand dollar budget. It goes on to make forty eight thousand four hundred and eighty two, which is another really good fucking investment if we're talking dollars and cents here. Um, and then one other quick uh, note here is that um, this is from Wikipedia is that it, I guess the film was designed to be in as inexpensive inexpensive as possible to make. These scenes were heavily rehearsed so they could do things in just one or two takes and they needed it to economize the idea of shooting on the, the 16 millimeters I was say, stock, the film, which is film cost money yeah that was the production's greatest expense and for which nolan was paying from his salary uh so yeah he was just kicking in his own money on that and then uh he also was unable to afford expensive professional lighting equipment as one does when you only have six grand six grand in terms of a lighting setup will it'll get you lights but you know not necessarily super uber professional stuff and so he used a lot of like professional or, or sorry natural and kind of like available lighting mm-hmm. um, some of the stuff is visible like in times it does maybe get a little bit too dark for its own good but it's nothing to like where I'm just like oh my god this shit was so horribly fucking mm-hmm. Right. You know, it wasn't right. like that at all. So and then um, he obviously helped out in every other element of making this film. Absolutely. Dude, it's it's think about it now. Um, if you had a six thousand dollar budget to do this movie, how much how much easier it would be to make and oh, yeah. how much better their production would look. Just thinking about like the just using just using like forty dollar ring lights mm-hmm. and like and yeah. your cell phone, how much better it would look. Oh my God. I know. Right. Like it's insane how, like in terms of like cost, the super expensive stuff is still out there and it's still super expensive. But in terms of like budgetary shit, you can make a really great product with not that much professional equipment, dude. Like you're right. $40 ring lights, a couple of those, you're looking at a pretty good, you're looking at enough to light a set for sure. It's fun. It's crazy. It's just fucking crazy. And again, we're talking about a movie that's 24 years old. Like it's not that long ago. How, how much, how much that sort of, I mean, I think obviously all technology is heading heads towards its most efficient form anyway, but Again, the idea of like the the idea of how social media has changed, um, who exactly can create content. Mm-hmm. I I think with I think without Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, whatever. I don't I don't know that people uh, the people outside of Hollywood are investing in things like ring lights. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. For what reason? You know what I mean? Like just to get like a, a slightly better picture. Um, yeah, so it's just one of those, it's just one of those interesting things, how the consumer market has smashed the price on certain things down so low that if this movie was made, if the same movie was made today, it would look again, it nothing wrong with the way it looks whatsoever. It would just look way more professional. Oh God. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm waiting for the market to do the same thing with electric cars and then we'll, then I'll be happy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, so what place is this? Uh, what place is following in the um, you know makes it noteworthy in the grand scheme of B movies? Okay, so 
I'm going to focus on like the time period here specifically, because this came out in, in 98 memento, uh, followed soon thereafter maybe like 2000, 2000. i think somewhere yeah. somewhere in there so like this movie is <clears throat> sort of like the tail end of these directors that are from this time period of like going into the 90s and 2000s that like I, I don't like it's almost like this family of directors from this time period that just went on to have like a ton of success. You know, some of them like Nolan and, and Tarantino and everything like that, just like a fuck ton of success, you know, um, and Kevin, Kevin Smith had his run at success, too. And like so this film is like another like really important artifact as to where this class of directors that are, and I guess like if you, if you were to ask me like, who is the most influential filmmaker of our generation? I, my answer probably would vary depending on like whatever day you ask me. Yeah. But like when it term, when it comes to this like crop of people, like the Nolans, the Finchers, the Tarantinos, the, 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 the Kevin Smith's, like even like the, the Paul Thomas Anderson's of the world, like, this time period and these early movies are really important because they not only, you know, give a starting ground and the roots and foundation of these really prominent careers, but it also, you know, just kinds of shows a whole other, it shows a whole other generation of indie filmmakers and uh, DIY filmmakers that like that this kind of stuff can be done and you can go from a $6,000 movie to your, you know, to a few, to a feature 10, 15 years down the road where $6,000 doesn't even buy a phone call with your lead. So Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a really great like example of, of, of movie of independent film that came out at the time. And I mean, like we're talking like the real like indie flick stuff here, not like the low budget Miramax stuff that everybody like right. thinks is independent stuff, but this right. is like real entertain, real independent cinema that birthed like a colossus of, of the industry and stuff. And I, I, I think that like when you, when you talk about, like really like like prominent directors of our time periods like a lot of the names that would go on this list all have projects that are like sort of similar to following yeah no absolutely i i think you know i don't i don't know this for certain but i would go ahead and guess that you know that the crop of directors that you named um you know nolan um tarantino paul thomas anderson um let's let's even throw in peter jackson into this conversation too yeah. Mm-hmm. Where I'm gonna go ahead and make a guess that they were probably huge fans of those '60s B movies that yeah. were, you know, and, and and the grindhouse cinema and and that, and that kind of stuff, and so you know you have them, you know, their early work in that sort of genre, and then and then but then they're they're sort of crafting it so those movies. So those types of movies, those neo-noir crime movies and um, and horror movies and fantasy movies and those kinds of things aren't <clears throat> they aren't limited to like how we think of sort of oh well this can't you know this can't be more than what it is like mm-hmm. you know we now have fucking elves and dwarves winning Academy Awards um, right. for people you know like it, these these again I think the like the neo-noir crime movie. It, 
blows up big in the 90s and obviously you get like Mulholland Drive like wins an Oscar like actually wins multiple Oscars I believe um but like at a, there was a point in time where those movies were not those were like those were the B movies were those sort yeah. of those gumshoe movies with the you know with the like we said the drunk detective helping out the damsel in distress and like now fast forward to the 90s these are the movies that are winning academy awards and are in the discussion every year for best movie or best picture yeah dude without a doubt like this guy this kind of like neo-noir stuff like you know there's this like period of time in this film history in the, in like the 90s and 2000s where like this stuff really does have a, as a resurgence and like you know you could assign that to um maybe just the the way of new te- new storytelling methods and techniques that have just kind of been pioneered over time or it could just be even maybe like people are just like sick of like you know the the typical pi with his name on the door and stuff so they have to find newer ways to kind of tell these stories and stuff and when it comes to like you know like film noir and everything like <clears throat> If you look at like I guess like a like a film history book or maybe even like a timeline, a lot of film noir is like kind of concentrated into like these two areas and this like the early time in like the thirties, forties and fifties and then this time in like the the nineties and two thousands mm-hmm. to like where it's really popular and, and, and noticeable. So it's probably a time for this genre to to make a comeback in a new and cool and sort of maybe B movie esque kind of way in the same way that um, cinema shifted more in the direction of the B movies when Superman Jaws and Star Wars came out. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh boy. I feel like, I feel like this is a discussion we need. We need some kind of film scholar to help round this discussion <laughs> out because, but I mean, yeah. I, I, but I mean like we're hitting on, we're, we're definitely hitting on some stuff that like it, there, there really is this sort of, there's definitely a transition period in the eighties and nineties and I, I really think a big a big portion of this is just the fact that these filmmakers, you know, are just fans of these movies and they want to make their own mm-hmm. version of them. Pulp, there is no way if you made Pulp Fiction in the '60s, there's no way that movie is getting nominated for anything. No, no way, not a chance, not a fucking chance, not a chance at all. And like this, um, <clears throat> some of the, the like I guess like the creativity that was behind a lot of these movies from this time period and stuff like really fucking felt fresh to a lot of people. Like the idea of two guys sitting in a car talking about the quarter pounder and buying a beer at a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Like not only was that something that seemed fresh, but that somehow became like a staple of our pop culture afterwards. Too. Kind like of the phrase Royale with cheese. Like, ca- kind of. <laughs> I mean, I love that scene so fucking great, but also like, as we've mentioned multiple times before, Every filmmaker out there, you don't you don't all have to do that all the time, right? That's we right. we don't <laughs> always need just side conversations about stuff. Just it fits in certain movies, and some movies it makes no sense. Right, that's that's exactly exactly right on that, dude, for sure. And like with Tarantino and that's his style and everything, it totally fits the mold. And you know, at this time period, there weren't a lot of people like doing this kind of stuff. I mean, you had like a lot of this kind of shit in Goodfellas and stuff, you know, and, but like in terms of, you know, making a whole movie like where that's a consistent kind of theme throughout the dialogue is it's it's a newer thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you even, you even get it just a little bit in this movie, the, the sort of, you know, the, the way that, um, uh, Bill, the young man sort of interrogate, I want to call interrogates, but just the, the conversations he has with the blonde are, so, you know, sometimes topical, sometimes just sort of conversations. Um, you know, you, you could, I, I would argue in both in both this movie and uh, the Fast and the Furious, 
there there are lines of dialogue or like exchanges that you could cut out that wouldn't affect anything. No, you're you're definitely right on that. Definitely, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of that with a lot of fucking movies. Even for well, yeah, dialogue, ju- a lot of dialogue for dialogue juggernaut as Pulp Fiction is, and how I will probably go to war over about ninety percent of the, the dialogue in that movie. There's definitely a lot of shit that could be cut yeah. out with an yeah. axe, no less. <laughs> yeah. So, um, did you did you I, you probably stumbled into this question a little bit, but why did you choose this particular movie? Okay, so um, not only, like, I hadn't seen it, and, and, like, I will tell you that, um, you know, I got into the Nolan Hype train and Memento during our um, film appreciation class with Miss Marchenko in high school. That was my first kind Good of call. introduction to uh, Christopher Nolan. So I, I did, like, now knowing that this movie was not only available but for free, this definitely perpetuated uh, my decision. But um, I'm going to get into one major thing, and this is what I was trying not to get into before, was um, – I, and I mentioned this in like kind of like the, the last episode that we did. Um, I was like, I don't know. I was kind of toying with the idea of doing like an intentionally bad movie. Cause like, you know, we were going for one older movie, mm-hmm. one a little bit more contemporary. And I decided against that. Um, like for a couple of reasons, the first one being that um, I've watched a lot of good movies lately. I don't really want to like fuck up that streak by like pr- intentionally putting myself in a position to watch a movie that is intentionally bad. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have a lot of really good dialogue that sprung off of our experience with the video dead, but I'm, I just, I kind of didn't want to go that route again. And I was sort of fearful that the conversation would become more about what I'm about to get into than the actual substance of the movie itself. And that is like this question that I've always had is just like, what in the absolute fuck is the point of making one of these intentionally bad movies? Yeah. And I, um, like one of my first ones that came to mind was Velocipaster, which is a very accessible, intentionally bad movie. And this movie, you know, mm-hmm. when it, in the course of the pandemic has kind of made some headlines, like people mm-hmm. burned through all the movies that they had on Amazon. And this was one that, you know, some people were watching and, I fucking hate this movie. Like it's like if you want to talk about like maybe like the concept of this like velociraptor priest type thing, like okay, you'll get me there at the concept. Like that does sound interesting to me. But when I saw this movie and how the mechanics and execution of what actually happens on the screen works, it's fucking awful. And there are people out there that are like, Oh my god, dude, it's like so funny that like instead of showing a car on fire, they just have this little subtitle that says car is on fire. No, that's not good. Mm-hmm. That's not good at all. And um, Jess and I have had a conversation sort of similar to the one that we are having now. And like when we asked the question, why we seem to land on the same answer all the time. And this is what I believe. And I'm sure that there are multiple, this is one of the multitude of reasons why people make these movies. But I think that they're just looking to create their own fucking safety net. So like if somebody goes into the theater and walks out and says, Hey, fuck you. That was the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen. The director can say, well, yeah, it was supposed to be like right. that. Ha, la, 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 la. <clears throat> right. And like, where's the risk then? Like half of this whole shit with art and everything like that, there's always like a, a, a risk involved in everything because it's you putting your vision out there. You're basically saying like, hey, guys, enjoy the fucking thing that I made. And there are um, 
I'm going to go in in two ways with this next part here. And the first way is that like, this is just a colossal waste of like time and fucking money in general, like theater space, uh, Amazon space. That could easily be another movie title card for me to skip over when I'm trying to find something to watch. And the second thing is other than it being a waste of time is that in this town and in several towns throughout the country, there are, thousands millions of people out there that are trying to get their shit made that are working hard and tirelessly and relentlessly and getting stuck down rabbit holes of research that amount to nothing but it's just something you have to do at the time because it comes with the process and these people that are so hard at work doing this shit and grinding it out all the time aren't getting anything like they, they get fucking rejected on they get shit on they get all this stuff and just keep coming back for more and dusting themselves off like a fucking champ. And then this gets an opportunity to get put into production. I feel that it's insulting to the people out there that are working so fucking hard. And, I'm not, and who knows, it might've been the hardest goddamn thing in the world to make Velocipaster, but I really don't care because the product ended up being what it is. And um, as somebody who is trying to make it into the industry, I'll do my default, like, oh, I guess I'm glad it got made. Ha, 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 good for you guys. As a, But at the same time, like, I feel that what these people did to make Velocipaster should have been something else. It could have been, and like, there, when I say it could have been anything else, I'm casting a really, really, really wide net here. And I feel that um, this is kind of just one of these, like, overall waste of time. And um, while you and I are able to get our kicks and get some words and stuff like that out of an intentionally bad movie. And there's some of these that are out there that I, I may even enjoy because I have some connection to it. But um, in terms of bringing uh, the, the, the bad movie B movie discussion for this month, I just didn't want to do it. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that. And that's why, that's why I don't think of movies like Velocipaster and um, you know, the attack of the ice spiders uh, or, you know, Transmorphers. Like, I don't think of those as being B-movies. Simply because even even B-movies are trying to... They're, they're, they are trying to sort of um, tell a story the best they can. And yeah. this is what I'll go back to... I'll, I'll go back to a movie that you and I are a fan of that I discovered last year, or maybe even the year before now at this point. It's hard to... The, the pandemic years are really beginning to blend together now. Um, I know. But um, when when you and I talk about the void in such mm-hmm. like glowing terms, is it a great movie? No, it's not a great movie. But this is a movie that is that is was made like a I think we I think like eighty thousand dollar budget or something like that. that really small budget. Really yeah. small budget that maximizes the budget does not feel cheap at any point in time. Is definitely a really really creepy horror movie. Um, like mm-hmm. drawing off the you know drawing off of some you know classic horror movies really like hits those hits all the right notes in in that sense. It feels it feels like an eighties type horror movie, and right. like even though it's not fantastic, it's 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 not something that like like oh my god the most overlooked horror movie of all time. But like it is trying to be it's trying to be the best that it can on its budget, right. and it fucking mm-hmm. succeeds in doing that it's a great it's a great little 85 minute horror movie that like if you're a fan of horror movies like i that's why i'd recommend it to i wouldn't recommend this to everyone but like knowing your taste in movies knowing some other certain other people's taste in movies i'm like you gotta check this movie out you'll get a fucking kick out of it Mm -hmm. um 
I, I saw another one. Uh, I saw another one last year. It's, it was around the same point in time where I was kind of digging through certain horror movies, and it was called Blood Vessel. And it was um, it's this movie. It's a story about like these like this World War II coalition of soldiers. Their ship goes down, and they get picked up um, by a by a Nazi warship. But it's like mm-hmm. or a Nazi cargo ship. But it's like abandoned, and there's uh, vampires on the ship. And yeah. it's is it great? No, but like I know exactly what they're going for. Um, there's some legitimately good scares. The the their version of a vampire is actually fucking creepy looking. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's on a lower budget, so it doesn't hit the same way, but I could imagine that if they had more money, that this movie would be like an underground kind of hit. Yeah. Um, because it's not trying to be bad. It's just trying to do the best it can on its budget. And I, right. That's the difference between Velocipaster and The Void. Like, that's the difference. Velocipaster isn't trying to do the best it can. It's just doing something to, like you said, a safety net or just like, you know, it, it it's just a... Uh, I don't know the equivalent of a commercial um, mm-hmm. for for the filmmakers. Like, oh my god, you see what those fucking people made, and then right. like the name is you know then the name is out there. Right, exactly, dude. Yeah, that's a really fucking great way to put it. And like, your uh, budget on the void was eighty two thousand five hundred ten and made one forty nine three sixty five, almost double the fucking money. Yeah. and like and like, I got to tell you, I love the shit out of that. The ending that's great. of that movie is fucking incredible, and like that is a movie right there that has all the fucking heart in the world here and stuff. And maybe that's how I should, should have put it earlier is this concept of heart. And sometimes that's, sometimes it's hard to define and you, you kind of only know it when you see it or feel it. But yeah, those intentionally bad movies have like no fucking heart in them whatsoever. And like, I, I just kind of question the, like, I, I guess I'm going to put it like this is like, if you're ever in a situation where you're watching a movie, like one of these intentionally bad movies, and you notice that the person next to you is like laughing out loud, hysterical, just know that, um, that person that is laughing out loud is probably somebody that the world can like do without, or like the world won't miss that individual. It just like speaks to something that I, I want really like no part of. And, mm-hmm. and it's all just seems to like be, at least like in my opinion, it just seems to be like rooted in this laziness. Like if you're really like, you could really feel the fucking laziness when it comes to those movies. And when it comes to like movies like the void, and I have not seen blood vessel, but I that very intriguing is that, um, those don't have that they, they don't no. have like those have like the, the heart and shit and stuff like that they don't have the the fucking laziness and stuff like that as the velocipastors of the world it, that's a really good way that's a really good way to put it laziness and heart laziness versus heart and like a lot of like again if a movie's bad it's bad but if it like if, if it's very clear that it's trying to do something you know it's it has you know the the production had heart as as you put it like it, that comes through like it 100% comes through, even if a movie isn't that great. Right. Exactly. You could just feel that kind of fucking shit. And you have a tendency of kind of buying into those stuff, those kinds of situations a little bit more when you could feel that hard, dude, like American pickers, like it's a show about guys going around digging through barns, finding stuff that is old and sometimes withered with rust. But when you listen to those fucking dudes talk about this shit, you just cannot help but be memorized because their hearts are into it in ways yeah. that I will never, ever know. <laughs> there you go. I think that's, I think that might be our first American pickers reference at all ever on this show. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised. Cause like, honestly, like what I just said there is like my default 
explanation for how I explain passion and the, <laughs> the fact that it's taken this it's long. It's just like the American Pickers, baby. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, everything in this world is, is an episode of American Pickers. <laughs> well, soon enough it will be. Um, that's just the way TV setting. Um, yeah, we're gonna true. be we're gonna be on it for something. Um, well, I'm waiting for the Pickers movie to come out. For I know, sure. right? <laughs> um, dude, I'm again. Just as I don't I don't want to get us too far off on a tangent. Like, at what point in time in your life do you think you're going to be in a reality show? Because it's going to happen, right? For both of us. I think so. I think that that option is 100% on the table, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like, at some point in time, they're going to need to film me for some reason. for To fill up some, you know, fucking eighth-tier network that's only available, like, on, you know, streaming at certain times a day. They're going to they're gonna need to follow me right. around while I do shit. Oh yeah, I can just see it now. Like people paying bills or normal people doing normal stuff, you know, and they follow you to like Taco Bell and they they follow you to the store, all that kind of shit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, let's let's. I don't want to get too far down that 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 tangent, but let's get to the standouts for uh, for following. So again, um, your your standout performance in following. Oh, this goes to Alex Haw as Cobb all the way. Yep, for I sure. can't believe that this fucking guy has not done anything else. You go to his IMDb page, it is just this one fucking movie. Yep. Like, I cannot believe that this guy delivered what he delivered in a 70-minute movie, and then, like Kaiser Sose, was never heard from again. <laughs> like, I, I can't <laughs> well, believe. I mean, he killed all these people, so he has to disappear now. Yeah, that's true. Yes. That, oh my God. Maybe that guy is Kaiser Soze. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, I mean, Chubby, you're absolutely right. Like, again, um, uh, uh, Theo Young, uh, God damn it. Jeremy Theobald and um, and uh, Lucy Russell were totally, I mean, totally good. Totally good piece of this movie. Um, Cobb is the, Cobb is the thing, I think, that more so than anyone else, he is the one that elevates this. Um, he's, his character is so uniquely weird in this particular genre of movie, um, in these neo-noir movies. There's just not a... I can't think of another character exactly like him that exists in the ones that I'm thinking of. And and Alex Haw just fucking nails it. Hits it out of the park. And here's here's my little... My conspiracy theory, since you've brought him up a couple times before. Could you... I feel like, after seeing this movie, I feel like Nolan has been chasing Alex Haw ever since... Because I could 100% see Killian Murphy being in this movie playing the cop part. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, total fucking Lee, dude. Yeah, if anything, like, Killian Murphy, I would have thought, been the guy that would have ended up in this role and stuff. But but it wasn't the case. And, like, this guy, Alex Hall, like, for a second, I thought he was the guy who was the David Wallace character on the British British office. They just, something about the two of them kind of looked alike to me, but he he just, not not the case. Right. And the the very first time I, I, like, we glanced, we got a glimpse of him in the coffee shop. At first, for a minute there, I was like, is that Peter Serafinowitz? And I was like, no, Serafinowitz is seven foot eight. Or, I mean, he's fucking enormous. Like, it's clearly not him. But, like, what what a unique what a unique actor voice look. Um, I, it, so the, like, I, I was curious cause I did see that he only had, this is his only credit. And I was, you know, I was just like, okay, I got to look this up. How has this guy not been in like multiple movies? Um, and he's like, he runs like a, like a pretty well known architecture firm in London. So like, <laughs> of course, I, I mean, like, he's probably, he's probably richer <laughs> doing that than he ever would have been doing movies. But like it's just so it's just so fucking interesting that like this character almost as if Nolan saw this guy and is like I have to try to find this type of actor again, and then he mm-hmm. finds Killian Murphy and he's like found him, 
Yeah. Can you imagine being Alex Haw and like, and I know he's probably raking in money from an architecture firm, but like, let's just say there probably wasn't a point in time where this architecture firm was so successful. Like, and he decided to gut it out on his own. Like, I want to be an architect. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there was ever like any, just like, man, I should have been the scarecrow. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I should have did that with my life. (laughs) I should have, I should not have thrown away Christopher Nolan's number. Right. Like, do like they still talk? Like, I mean, is Nolan like scarred forever because this guy didn't want to work with them again? Like, could Christopher Nolan just like respect the fact that he wants to live a normal life as an architect? Like, is this something that Nolan thinks is what people should be doing? Like, there's so many questions here. Uh, it's it's really it really is strange. I mean, it, imagine. Um... Um, oh gosh, what, what would be the, the equivalent? Well, I mean, just to keep it in, in the Nolan verse here, what if like Heath Ledger was an unknown previously, delivers the Joker performance, and he you know, obviously unfortunately dies, but like then just but he doesn't die, he just decides not to act anymore. Yeah, I will tell you, some fanboy would have killed him. Somebody would have went John Hinckley on him and just like watched the the Dark Knight a thousand times, and just some fans' obsession would have ended Heath Ledger's life yeah. if that was the case. I will assure you of that. <laughs> Granted, I'm not I'm not saying that Alex Haw is like it's not like at that level, but it just it just to me I'm like boy the the you know the other two stuck with it. And like you're, he's clearly the standout. I just, it's just yeah. interesting. The, the other two stuck with it, and like you know, they had they had careers in in like the industry and stuff yeah. like that. But they're still going. You know, they're still they're still working. Yeah, Theobald was like water maintenance guy in Batman Begins. That's a world of difference from being the Scarecrow, who I'm pretty sure Ka would have gotten or probably have gotten that that part <laughs> facts to him. <laughs> probably. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, so what about your, I guess, I, I'm not really sure if there's necessarily anything here, but uh, is there a standout effect for uh, following? I, I couldn't even think of one. Every, I don't think there are any, like, real effect. I mean, like, maybe a dissolve or something. I, I don't know, but yeah. there's not really anything effects-wise in the terms of compared to the Fast and the Furious 54 or definitely not in comparison to the Nolan movies now. So, I mean, like, if there was... Any like legit effects in here? I, I just I was probably too wrapped up in the movie to actually notice anything. Yeah, I, I, again, like I didn't think there was anything really here. I, I'll I'll give it this that simply using the black and white, using black and white film, I think gives this a very different feel. If this was in color, I don't think this has the same. Um, I, I'm not really sure how to describe it, but I just don't think it has the same feel in color. But you know, I think you could say that about yeah. most black and white movies. Um, I mean, should say most modern movies that choose to be black and white. Um, I just don't think would have the same feel. Um, I will, I will criticize one thing here though. The, the way that, uh, the way that everyone gets killed, like with the hammer, didn't really feel that impactful. <laughs> no, I gotcha. No, I totally got you on that one. Like even when they're doing the, um, the, the guy, the witness guy that, um, yeah. the blonde witnesses the murder of, um, even with him like getting his hands busted, we definitely didn't feel bad at all. Like no. not a chance. And I, I'm pretty positive that the only way, at least for me to maybe get that feeling would be to have some type of splatter or some type of like shot of the camera making contact. But we just didn't get like the, we didn't get a casino putting the guy <laughs> smacking his hand down and shit like that. Right. You know, <laughs> they, I mean, honestly, real easy fix an easy fix but something that i'm surprised they didn't like try just like have the have the actor who plays the bald man uh her you know her boyfriend or the crime boss or whatever 
have him swing that hammer into like a like a celery stalk. Give us yeah. give us some you know some audio, audio give us some audio that makes this feel like something's happening. Yeah, fucking that exploding ketchup packet. Maybe it was because there's a carpeted floor. They didn't want to go with that route or something more could money be. in the budget to clean it. But it could be. Yeah, this was definitely like um like we got the the point. These people died, but we didn't feel it. Yeah, exactly. So I I I, I wanted to throw that in there. I actually kind of forgot to mention it before. But again, there's nothing really effects wise that this isn't an effects movie even at a, at a very basic level so right um but we can't get into this part uh direction camera work this is a lot to talk about here yeah the standout camera work for me is easily just the way that he puts all these fucking pieces together and there's a scene in when you're about 10 or 15 minutes into the movie where like bill is like laying on the ground he's pulling this like cloth out of his mouth and I was like, okay, like, what are they doing here? Is this like a, a fantasy dream type thing? Mm-hmm. But then no, like around like minute 45, 50, we get some actual like resonance on this. And even like, even the beginning with like the, um, the opening up of the, the crate and the inspection of all the different items and everything, I was kind of like wondering like what the hell that was. And even at the end, they somehow managed to give us a catharsis and resonance on those particular series of yeah. shots. So this whole like there was, um, if there's any fat that's in this movie, it's probably just more like you know a couple lines here and there and stuff. But when it comes to these like kind of random scattered shots, there was like no fat on them whatsoever. These right. were just pieces that were waiting to be fit into the puzzle. Absolutely, and um, so I agree with you on all all of that. Um, they did it. He did such a good. I don't even say they. Like there was a camera crew. It's Christopher Nolan. He. <laughs> Did a really he did a really good job of when we do get sort of the um, those sort of establishing shots of, of like Bill, it, it really does paint a picture of someone who, um, as he describes, you know what he was doing with the following, like how he, how it starts. You really do get this very obvious portrait of someone who is fucking alone, mm-hmm. like is totally and completely alone. Um, I, I, that's probably something story-wise they could have explored a little bit more with more time. You know, the sort of, I mean, it's very clear that he's a very lonely person, but, um, but like, again, show us that he's lonely and Mm -hmm. the story, you know, his explanation for the story for what he's doing on its own is that is the, that is the, I don't know, the, um, the idea of a fucking lonely, crazy person to begin with. So, you know. Could have again. Could have used a little bit more on that. But when they do, when they do show Bill just standing by himself, you can just feel how fucking alone he is. It's a really right. good, really. It's a it's a movie, folks. We want visual storytelling. That is great visual storytelling in very short bursts. Yeah, definitely, dude. They even got the the apartment down and everything like that. This guy, just everything as far as like the visual stuff and kind of showing us that this dude is definitely alone. He does a really good job of it, and with little to no time to develop. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's um man. This is one of those. This feels like one of those movies that um um that it's got to be shown in 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 in, you know college level like um you know film criticism class film you know you know breaking down film it's got to be shown in those kind of classes yeah this has to be like this i would have to, i would think that like you know they maybe use memento in like high school but in college this is the one that they give you in college yeah more of the you get cuz you can really break down more of the mechanics of of everything mm-hmm. that he does even the and, and uh, like i i love this the 
his ending is a blueprint for almost all of his movie endings in some way, shape, or form. Again, like it's like the seeds of how he ends films are in this ending. Oh my god! Yeah, there was the, another twist at the end too. Like as if the the tw- the twist in the middle wasn't big enough, we got an even bigger fucking twist at the end mm-hmm. that I tell you didn't see any of that shit coming with the whole, you know, there's no older lady who's been beaten, no, none of that stuff. But however, we have records of you, you know, in the, the green card and everything like yep. that. I didn't think that the green card thing would come back at all. Turns out to be like one of the quintessential pieces of the twist at the end. Yep. It, it's it just laying all those little, laying all those little pieces down. And then it comes back at the end. Um, this is, you know, you, you don't, it's not what you expect. This is this is the equivalent to me. the The way that um, this all wraps up, and it's very clear that um, that Bill's going to go. Uh, you know, Bill's heading towards a not so great future. It it just it the ending felt very similar to the ending of Inception, knowing mm-hmm. that they're very different, but it felt very similar the way it ends without like without getting the resolution that you thought you're going to get. That's that's a hundred percent right, and in both films contain a guy named Cobb who steals stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very it, interesting. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's, it's it is it's just incredible. Like it has to be. I, I'm going to go ahead and make a wild guess here that Alex Haw was perfectly happy not acting because why wouldn't you want to attach yourself to Christopher Nolan, someone who clearly has you in mind for other roles <laughs> in his later work. Yeah, I know. I know. This, like, the guy just must have, like, balls of steel and all the confidence in the world. Like, he must have, like, five wives or something like that. Like, there's just, it, it's an, like what has gone on with this guy, even just like what we've hashed out in the course of this discussion, is just like, that is like an opportunity that there are, there's a million freaking people in Southern California that would commit acts of crime to oh, yeah. get that, to get that consideration. Yeah. And this guy's just like, yeah, no, I want to draw buildings. <laughs> you know, you guys see the McDonald's over on Queen Boulevard. It's mine. I know it's dude. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts, but whatever. Um, all right. Uh, let's, let's Siskel and Ebert. Let's Siskel and Ebert this following uh, thumbs up or thumbs down. Why? Oh my God! If I could get two big foam thumbs from a stadium and put them up, they would be two-way thumbs up. Yeah. Just amazing! Just amazing! This whole thing, like it—it's amazing because like it was totally different than what I expected. But after watching it, I'm just like, yeah, why didn't you expect it? That is a yeah. product overall. Um, and I. I guess there are just times where like you really love stumbling upon something at random and it turns out to be great. And it just gives you that like extra shot of happiness. That's what I'm experiencing here. Like I'm telling you, there was, I, I don't really think I dabbled too far into the, the, I didn't come up with this long list of directors for the, uh, the contemporary B movie. I just, I sort of just kind of, juggled around two or three names and i was like all right this one is on youtube and it's free and it turned out to be a great decision yeah for sure i think i think the sort of i had because i had the same kind of disconnect um where the movie despite me kind of having a general idea of what it was going to be um it still like was even different in a a very great way Mm because i think as you know not to beat this not to beat this horse anymore but we're so used to seeing when you go back and watch the first movie of some director or even some actor, it, it's just vastly different from, you know, what, what, what is coming, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later. 
It's so different. And mm-hmm. in many ways, this is very different, but also this is very, very much the same <laughs> of like, yeah. There, yeah. there really isn't much of a leap other than, you know, production values and star quality. There isn't much of a leap from here to Memento. No, there is not, dude. And I will tell you, like, there is a big difference between Scorsese's Mean Streets and like even like Taxi Driver and mm-hmm. stuff in terms of like the, the filmmaking, all that kind of shit. This is the Nolan handprint, <laughs> like the yep. handprints. <laughs> it's nuts. It's nuts. So to that end, two thumbs way up as well. Um, this is this is fantastic. I, I, I really need to I really need to um, uh, more frequently dig into some of the older movies from not even necessarily well-known directors, but directors that have just been working for a while. Just to mm-hmm. go back and see like their early attempts and stuff. I, I need to do that more often. Just let's add this to the list of shit that you and I need to watch for personal <laughs> right. reasons and for this. Uh, just add it to the list. But um, thumbs way, two thumbs way up. Uh, more people, more people out there need to not worry about the latest Marvel movie. You know, like I believe you, I'm, I'm really excited to go see the Multiverse of Madness. But how about you go back and watch some old Sam Raimi movies because they're really good. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I kind of think that like. People, whenever they do go see a bigger one, you might as well watch an older version of or an older movie from that director yeah. just to kind of get yourself fired up here and stuff. For sure. Like, and especially because you're right, like these dudes like Raimi who are still clicking and still kicking ass have a pretty cool catalog that you can go back on, whether it's Darkman, Evil Dead, whatever it is. Oh, go back and watch uh, when he he took time off to go um, to go make to go produce Xena Warrior Princess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, like that—that that show is fuck. That is B television, right there. Fucking camp mm-hmm. and great. It's fucking fantastic. Yeah, I get. I keep forgetting that uh, Lucy Lawless makes appearances in like the. I can't remember if it's all three Spider Mans, but she's in a, a mm-hmm. couple of them. Oh, I, I think it's all three Spider Mans, and oh, she's in something else too. But yes, yeah, she. Um, yeah, he he had a very formative time working in Australia uh, with all those people down there. So. Hell yeah, dude! All right. Uh, any final thoughts here on following and or the the Fast and the Furious? Nothing new to add to the conversation, other than I really like this is a great idea for the episode and also for the fucking month, dude. I love it, and I'm looking forward to um to the movies that you selected for the next episode. I'm very excited. Um, I'm, I I love doing these movies. By the way, this was fantastic. Um, excellent choices, and I'm really pumped to. I'm really pumped to to dig into. Uh, we're doing Superman and the Mole Men from 1951 um, with uh, George Reeves as uh, as Superman, and then we are doing, in honor of the now late great Fred Ward, uh, we are doing Cast a Deadly Spell uh, from 1991. And hell and, yeah! And honestly, I was actually thinking about before before I even saw news that uh, Fred Ward died. I was actually thinking either. I was kind of thinking about uh, doing a uh, Remo Williams was like my first choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually now I think it is on YouTube, but, um, but I, I saw that cast a deadly spell was on HBO max and I'm like, Oh, well let's, yes, we're, we're going to go yeah, with that. Yeah. And then he died. And then I was like, we're absolutely doing that. So, um, yeah, so poor, should, rest in peace, rest in peace, Brad. rest in peace to a fucking B movie legend. Um, yeah. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so next week's or so next episode should be fun as well. Uh, Chubba, you want to lead us out of here? I definitely will. Everybody out there. Thank you so much for turning into 
part one of our B-movie double feature. And we will see you again next time for part two. So this is Adam Chemilewski and Matthew Pagel, The Occasionalist. Go out, <clears throat> stream, download, write us a review, whatever, uh, whatever you feel like doing. And we will see you next time. <laughs>